two wizards. Two wizards? Two wizards. Two wizards. I kept seeing this this word n- not only here but also in other places. But yeah, like what is a psychopomp? Like what does that even mean? And of course, like Greek brain. Now I know <laughs> that I know. Uh, yeah, it, it's just something that l- like literally leads souls. Um, and so like yeah, uh, the psycho part being the soul or spirit, and then pomp. Pomp comes from uh, this verb, uh, pempo, which means to like lead or whatever. Um, okay. And then that makes, so, um, well, and, and also like pomp and circumstance, like the graduation mm-hmm. song, that's kind of part of it. It's, it's like pomp, the like leading in, and leading something in and um, doing all, doing all that. So, yeah, I wish I could turn off this etymology stuff because I, I know it just annoys the hell out of everybody else. It's like Josh, we don't, we don't want to hear it. But did you know that period is actually a Greek word? It's just like I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> I'm just talking about, you know, my students don't know how to use punctuation. I don't need to hear the etymology of every single thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's okay. You're a wizard, and that's what you do. You attain a certain it's level what? of knowledge about something, and then you're. You're not fun at parties. Like, I think that's yeah. how we started the show, to make other people not fun at parties. But Right. And, yeah, you, yeah. like, creep people out with just how obsessive you get about it. And you gaze down that well so that others don't have to, I guess. But um, <laughs> but anyway. But, yes, welcome, everybody. Great to have you joining us once more uh, for uh, an episode of the Two Wizards podcast. And I'm Josh, and... I guess just one of the many wizardy things I do is etymology, but I'm Josh and I'm a wizard. And I'm Mark and I am also a wizard. And yeah, welcome everybody. And it's going to be kind of a fun special episode tonight. Mm -hmm. Uh, A little bit of a treat in store. But before we do that, talking about psychopomps and stuff, Mm -hmm. um, I guess we ought to just get into it. What's in our wizard's goblets there, Josh? Well, uh, we have... I think also something that's going to lead our souls somewhere where ex- what, what the destination is. I'm not entirely sure. Um, we had the idea to, to try and find some moonshine, um, but the supply chain being what it is in 2021, um, couldn't, couldn't quite get our hands on that. So what we have instead is a very special blend of two things that I never want to drink again afterwards, but I'll <laughs> stop. I'll stop bearing the lead. Uh, we have, Mountain Dew and cheap whiskey. Mountain Dew and cheap whiskey. What kind of is it, what kind of Mountain Dew? What kind of cheap whiskey? Uh, I just went for the original, uh, the okay. one that the no, I, no like Berry Blast or Mountain Dew Gamer X three sixty whatever whatever it is. I just went with the the Mountain Dew. Okay. Um, and again, looking for like the cheapest whiskey that I could. I ended up with uh, Southern Comfort. Oh wow, you're a brave man. Okay, I, I was, I'm committed to doing this. <laughs> you're gonna be, you're gonna be sugared up by the, by the end of this too. We got like a long thing ahead of us. You're gonna be all sugared up and everything. Gosh, you're gonna be a damn hummingbird. No, it, well, and, and and even think about that too. Like like, really trying to remember the last time I drank Mountain Dew. Uh, I was probably like seven. I was probably like seven or eight years old. <laughs> it's been it's it's been like twenty five years. 
it's, yeah, since college, I think, yeah. And like, so, you know, I have like I have like two cups of coffee each morning. So yeah, this is gonna I, I am. I'm gonna be bouncing off the walls and but then also like drunk on Southern Comfort. <laughs> so man it's it, we are in for a ride here i guess uh but that's that's my get up what what is your particular poison uh with you there mark um i have just the straight mountain dew and uh some jameson whiskey oh okay see there we go i i, w- I know it's not super cheap but then like man dude i could not like buy a bottle of kentucky deluxe you could put a no. gun to my head and say buy kentucky deluxe and i would say pull that trigger like I, I'm bad with whiskey anyway, unless it's like yeah. bourbon or scotch, and I, you know what I mean. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, why are we drinking Mountain Dew in our whiskey? What? Who would put Mountain Dew in whiskey, Josh? That's insane. Well, y- yes, that is something that uh, very few people do. Uh, but 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 part of it was, at, at least my understanding was, even though we like couldn't find moonshine, we were trying to think of like equally kind of trashy substitutes. <laughs> Uh, but also Mountain Dew, back in like the Prohibition kind of uh, bootlegger days, uh, Mountain Dew was another name for moonshine, and it was like everybody playing coy, like, "Oh wait, what's this? I just left my mason jar out by the stump, and like I don't know, tucked a dollar underneath, and then I came out the next morning, and there's this Mountain Dew that's filled up my cup, and the dollar bill is gone. Oh, that. <laughs> Mm, that delicious Mountain Dew. Uh, <laughs> that's at least kind of my understanding of how we arrived at this uh, concoction. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah. And, okay, and then we can do this too. Why are we drinking um, Stand in Moonshine slash Hillbilly whatevers? What are we going to do tonight, Josh? Well, uh, as as is our want, as is our prerogative as two wizards, um, we reserve the right at multiple intervals throughout the year to drink something horrible and read H.P. Lovecraft. And Woo! it's been, and it has been quite a while since we've cracked open the Necronomicon. And we just, we, we realized we hadn't done it in a while. Wanted to get a little frisky. Uh, I want to get a little, man, like really frisky um, <laughs> with what we're drinking here. But, uh, but yeah. I will, but I will defer to you to, to have the honor what what short story, what bit of Lovecraft are we reading for this occasion? Tonight we will be reading The Dunwich Horror. Oh, it's so good. So, oh, good. so good. And man, I, I, I've I made the mistake before in Lovecraft stuff or episodes where I think that I've read it once before and I'm fine. And I, I'm not. I stumble and I'm bad. So I pre-read this one to be, I wanted to be tight on it. And man, Josh, this is a trashy story if ever there was one. Like, <laughs> yeah, ooh, it is. oh, baby, I'm so excited. Like, yeah, I, well, yeah. It, and I think that also kind of impelled the rationale to drink moonshine. Like, what's yeah, mm-hmm. it's a story about a family that's out in the woods and kind of is up to their own devices, and they don't get along in like respectable society. And what would pair well with that? What what beverage would pair well with such a, with, with such literature? And, uh, and and so yeah, here we are. Here's here's where we've ended up. Um, yeah. And and also yeah, like one of like one of the hallmark uh, Lovecraft stories. I think like people think Call of Cthulhu, they think at the Mountains of Madness, uh, and yeah, quite often the Dunwich Horror is is right up there too. Yeah. 
And also, guys, just looking ahead a little bit, Thanksgiving is next week. Don't expect anything out of me. There, I said it. Okay, we can go now. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so so <laughs> like, if nothing else, no, well, so by the time that this gets processed and, and all that, you know, hey, maybe uh, maybe after, you know, your second or third plate of Thanksgiving dinner and as everybody's falling asleep on the couch, you can, you can blast out this... Uh, this uh, episode of the Two Wizards podcast, and man, if you think your family has problems, uh, ooh, just wait, <laughs> just, 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 you're you're in for a treat. <laughs> yes. If you hate family gatherings, just yeah, just 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 buckle up, Buttercup. <laughs> All right, let's get into this horrible thing. That's a weird like tea color and I'm kind of worried about it uh yes I am also a little worried I'm I'm also doing the proper thing and having a nice big uh water bottle next to me so I don't get too yep. crazy but but here's on you buddy cheers buddy oh the smell oh already just the smell oh the smell oh the flavors do not combine well Ooh. oh boy oh boy that sugar and <sighs> mm. oh god and I can only imagine you with your southern comfort dude that's got to be so rugged yeah it's not gonna lie, oh. this is this is gonna be <laughs> oh, oh the aftertaste. <laughs> okay, all right. You're I'm gonna to... give mine a bit of a stir. Maybe that's what it needs. Yeah, maybe that would help too. And I just man, if there's anything that can get my mind off of this uh, odiferous concoction before me, I sure hope it's H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> but here we go. Um, yeah. yeah, and and as per our usual, we'll, we'll trade paragraphs, or if there's like a couple of short ones, we'll go with that. Yeah, but um, and yeah, and then listeners, um, listen for this sound every time Josh and I take a drink. You take a drink too. <laughs> yes, yeah. Standard you can, rules apply. Standard rule rules apply exactly. All right, so here we go. So this is the Dunwich Horror by H.P. Lovecraft. Gorgons and Hydras and Chimeras, dire stories of Kaleno and the Harpies, may reproduce themselves in the brain of superstition, but they were there before. They are transcripts, types. The archetypes in, are in us and eternal. How else should the recital of that which we know in a waking sense to be false come to affect us at all? Is it that we naturally conceive terror from such objects? considered in their capacity of being able to inflict upon us bodily injury? Oh, least of all, these terrors are of older standing. They date beyond body, or without the body, they would have been the same. That the kind of fear here treated is purely spiritual, that it is strong in proportion as it is objectless on earth, that it, pre that, that it predominates in the period of our sinless infancy, are difficulties the solution of which might afford some probable insight into our anti-mundane condition, and a peep at least into the shadow land of pre-existence. And that's from Charles Lamb, Witches and Other Night Fears. 1. When a traveler in north-central Massachusetts takes the wrong fork at the junction of the Aylesbury Pike, just beyond Dean's Corners, he comes upon a lonely and curious country. The ground gets higher, and the briar-bordered stone walls press closer and closer against the ruts of the dusty, curving road. The trees of the frequent forest belt seem too large, and the wild weeds, brambles, and grasses attain a, lux a, attain a luxuriance not often found in settled regions. At the same time, the planted fields appear in singularly few and barren, while the sparsely scattered houses wear a surprisingly uniform aspect of age, squalor, and dilapidation. 
Without knowing why, one hesitates to ask for directions from the gnarled, solitary figures spied now and then on the crumbling doorsteps or the sloping, rock-strewn meadows. Those figures are so silent and furtive that one feels somehow confronted by forbidden things, with which it would be better to have nothing to do. When the rise in the road brings the mountains in view above the deep woods, the feeling of strange and uneasiness is increased. The summits are too rounded and symmetrical to give the sense of comfort and naturalness, and sometimes the sky silhouettes with especial clearness the queer circles of tall stone pillars with which most of them are now crowned. Gorges and ravines of problematical depth intersect the way, and the crude wooden bridges always seem of dubious safety. When the road dips again, there are stretches of marshland that one instinctively dislikes, and indeed almost fears at evening when unseen whippoorwills chatter and the fireflies come out in abnormal profusion to dance to the raucous, creepily insistent rhythms of stridently piping bullfrogs. The thin, shining line of the Miskatonic's upper reaches has an oddly serpent-like suggestion as it winds close to the feet of the domed hills among which it rises. As the hills draw nearer, one heeds their wooded sides more than their stone-crowned tops. Those sides loom up so darkly and precipitously that one wishes to keep their distance, but there is no road by which to escape them. Another covered bridge is seen, sees a small village huddled between the stream and the vertical slope of Round Mountain, and wonders at the cluster of rotting gambrel roofs bespeaking an earlier architecture period than that of the neighboring region. It is not reassuring to see, on a closer glance, that most of the houses are deserted or falling to ruin, and that the broken steeple church now harbors the one slovenly mercantile establishment of the hamlet. One dreads to trust the tenebrous tunnel of the bridge, and yet there is no way to avoid it. Once across, it is hard to prevent the impression of faint malign odor about the village street, as of the massed mold and decay of centuries. It is always a relief to get clear of the place and to follow the narrow road around the base of the hills and across the level country be beyond till it rejoins the Aylesbury Pike. Afterwards, one sometimes learned that one has been through Dunwich. Outsiders visit Dunwich as seldom as possible, and since a certain season of horror, all the signboards pointing toward it have been taken down. The scenery, judged by any ordinary aesthetic canon, is more than commonly beautiful, Yet there is no influx of artists or summer tourists. Two centuries ago, when talk of witch blood, Satan worship, and strange forest presences was not laughed at, it was the custom to give reasons for avoiding the locality. In our sensible age, since the Dunwich Horror of 1928 was hushed up by those who had the town's and the world's welfare at heart, people shun it without knowing exactly why. Perhaps one reason, though it cannot apply to uninformed strangers, is that the natives are now repellently decadent, having gone far along that path of retrogression so common in many New England backwaters. They have come to form a race by themselves, with a well-defined mental and physical stigmata of degeneracy and inbreeding. The average of their intelligence is woefully low, whilst their annals reek of overt licentiousness and of half-hidden murders, incests, and deeds of almost unnameable violence and perversity. The old gentry, representing the two or three armigerous families which came from Salem in 1692, have kept somewhat above the general level of decay, though many branches are sunk into the sordid populace so deeply that only their names remain as a key to the origin they disgrace. Some of the Watleys and bishops still send their eldest sons to Harvard and Miskatonic, 
though those sons seldom returned to the moldering gambrel roofs under which they and their ancestors were born. No one, even those who have the facts concerning the recent horror, can say just what is the matter with Dunwich. Though old legends speak of unhallowed rites and conclaves of Indians amidst what they call forbidden shapes of shadow out of the great rounded hills, and made wild orgiastic prayers that were answered loudly by, cra by crackings and rumblings from the ground below. In 1747, the Reverend Obijah Hoadley newly came to the Congregational Church of Dunwich Village and preached a memorable sermon on the close presence of Satan and his imps, in which he said, it must be allowed that these blasphemies of the infernal train of demons are master to the common knowledge to be denied. The cursed voices of Azazel and Buzrael, of Beelzebub and Belial, being heard now from under the ground by a score of credible witnesses now living. I myself, not a mere fortnight ago, to catch a very plain discourse of evil powers in the hill beyond, behind my house, wherein there were rattling and rolling and groaning and screeching and hissing, such as no things of this earth could raise up, and which must needs have come from the caves of that, that only black magic can discover, and only the devil unlock. Mr. Hoadley disappeared soon after delivering this sermon, but the text printed in Springfield is still extant. Noises in the hills continue to be reported from year to year, and form a strange puzzle to geologists and physiographers. Other traditions tell of foul odors near, near the heel-crowning circles of stone pillars, and of rushing airy presences to be heard faintly at certain hours from stated points at the bottom of the great ravines, while still others try to explain the devil's hopyard, a bleak blasted hillside where no tree, shrub, or grass blade will grow. Then too the natives are mortally afraid of the numerous whippoorwills which grow vocal on warm nights. It is vowed that the birds are psychopomps lying in wait for the souls of the dying, and that they time their eerie cries in unison with a sufferer's struggling breath. If they can catch the fleeing soul when it leaves the body, they instantly flutter away, chittering in demonic laughter. But if they fail, they subside gradually into a disappointed silence. I love that. Sad <laughs> whippoorwills. So <laughs> These tales, of course, are obsolete and ridiculous, because they come down from very old times. Dunwich is indeed ridiculously old, older by far than any of, any of the communities within 30 miles of it. South of the village, one may still spy the cellar, walls, and chimney of the ancient bishop house, which was built before 1700. Whilst the ruins in the mill at the falls, built in 1806, form the most modern piece of architecture to be seen. Industry did not flourish here, and the 19th century factory movement proved short-lived. Oldest of all are the great rings of rough-hewn stone columns on the hilltops, but these are more generally attributed to the Indians than the settlers. Deposits of skull and skulls and bones found within the circles around sizable table-like rocks on Sentinel Hill sustain the popular belief that such spots were once the burial places of the Pecumtucks. Even though many ethnologists disregard the absurd improbability of such a theory, persist in believing the remains Caucasian. Oh boy. So, okay, already off to a very haunting start here. Uh, very ooky spooky, yes. Very ooky spooky. I think one of my favorite lines is, uh, oh, what was it? Uh, there are stretches of marshland that one instinctively dislikes. <laughs> Just like, you're like driving by, I don't, I don't, I don't care for that one bit. You're, you know, driving along in your buggy and the marsh kind of like burbles up like, hey man, can you give me 10 bucks? I'll pay you back. It's like, hmm. I don't know about that marshland. I <laughs> I dislike him. 
But then also, yeah, that line about the uh, which which was our cold open about the whippoorwills being psychopomps, and as they start chattering, as somebody's about to die, and if and if they time it right, they they laugh and laugh, and if they fail, they just kind of oh. Aww. But uh, but I will I will drink to that. I'll drink to that. Here here. Oh. Alrighty. Oh, well, no, it, it is oh, not. It's not getting any better. It is not getting any better. I thought that ice might help it a bit. Oh, it didn't at all. <laughs> Did not one bit. Well, onward and upward. The stage is set. Here we are in Dunwich. Two. It was in the township of Dunwich, in a large and partly inhabited farmhouse set against a hillside four miles from the village and a mile and a half from any other dwelling, that Wilbur Watley was born at 5 a.m. on Sunday, the 2nd of February, 1913. This date was recalled because it was Candlemas, which people in Dunwich curiously observe under another name, and because the noises in the hills had sounded, and all the dogs out of the countryside had barked persistently throughout the night before. Less worthy of notice was the fact that the mother was one of the decadent Watleys, a somewhat deformed, unattractive albino woman of 35, living with an aged and half-insane father about whom the most frightful tales of wizardry had been whispered in his youth. Lavinia Watley had no known husband, but according to the custom of the region, made no attempt to disavow the child, concerning the other side of whose ancestry the, co the country folk might, and did, speculate as widely as they chose. On the contrary, she seemed strangely proud of the dark, goatish-looking infant who formed such a contrast to her own sickly and pink-eyed albinism, and was heard to mutter many curious prophecies about its unusual powers and tremendous future. Lavinia was, was one who would be apt to mutter such things, for she was a lone creature given to wandering amid thunderstorms in the hills and trying to read the great odorous books which her father had inherited through two centuries of Watley's and which were fast falling to pieces with age and wormholes. She had never been to school, but was filled with disjointed scraps of ancient lore that old Watley had taught her. The remote farmhouse had always been feared because of old Watley's reputation for black magic, and the unexplained death by violence of Mrs. Watley, when Lavinia was twelve years old, had not helped to make the, pop the place popular. Isolated among strange influences, Lavinia was fond of wild and grandiose daydreams and singular occupations. Nor was her leisure much taken up by the household cares of, in a home, from which all standards of order and cleanliness had long since disappeared. There was a hideous screaming, which echoed above the hill, even above the hill noises and dogs barking on the night of the night Wilbur was born. But no known doctor or midwife presided at his coming. Neighbors knew nothing of him till a week afterward, when old Watley drove his sleigh through the snow into Dunwich Village and discoursed incoherently to a group of loungers at Osborne's general store. There seemed to be a change in the old man, an added elemental furtiveness in the clouded brain, which suddenly transformed him from an object to a subject of fear. Though he was not one to be perturbed by any common family event, amidst it all he showed some trace of the pride later noted in his daughter, and what he said of the child's paternity was remembered by many of the hearers years afterwards. I don't care what folks think. If Lavinia's boy looked like his pa, he wouldn't look like nothing you expect. You needn't think the only folks is the folks hereabouts. Lavinia's read some, and has seed some things the most ye only tell about. I calculate her man is as good a husband as ye can find this side of Aylesbury. And if he knowed as much about them hills as I do, 
You wouldn't ask no better church wedding nor hearing. Let me tell you some. Someday you all folk will hear a child of Lavinia's a calling its father's name on top of old Sentinel Hill. The only persons who saw Wilbur during the first month of his life were old Zachariah Watley of the undecayed Watleys and Earl Sawyer's common-law wife, Mamie Bishop. Mamie's visit was frankly one of curiosity, and her subsequent tales did justice to her observations. But Zechariah came to lead a pair of Alderney cows which old Watley had bought of his son Curtis. This marked the beginning of a course of cattle buying on the part of small Wilbur's farm which ended only in 1928 when the Dunwich Horror came and went. Yet at no time did the ramshackle Watney barn seem overcrowded with livestock. There came a period when people were curious enough to steal up and count the herd that grazed precariously on the steep hillside above the old farmhouse, and they could never find more than ten or twelve anemic, bloodless-looking specimens. Eventually some blight or distemper perhaps sprung from the unwholesome pasturage, or the diseased fungi and timbers of the filthy barn caused a heavy mortality amongst the Watley animals. Odd wounds or sores, having something of the aspect of incisions, seemed to afflict the visible cattle and once or twice during the earlier months, certain callers fancied they could discern similar sores about the throats of the gray, unshaven old man and the slatternly, crinkly-haired albino daughter. In the spring after Wilbur's birth, Lavinia resumed her customary ramblings in the hills, bearing in her misproportioned arms the swarthy child. Public interest in the Watleys subsided after most of the country folk had seen the baby, and no one bothered to comment on the swift development with which the new that newcomer seemed every day to exhibit. Wilbur's growth was indeed phenomenal, for within three months of, of his birth he had attained the size and muscular power not usually found in infants under a full year of age. His motions and even vocal sounds showed a restraint and deliberateness highly peculiar in an infant, and no one was really unprepared when at seven months he began to walk unassisted, with falterings with which another month were sufficient to remove. It was somewhat after this time on Halloween that a great blaze was seen at midnight on the top of Sentinel Hill, where the old table-like stone stands amidst its tumulus of ancient bones. Considerable talk was started when Silas Bishop, one of the undecayed bishops, mentioned having seen the boy running sturdily up the hill ahead of his mother about an hour before the blaze was remarked. Silas was rounding up a stray heifer, but he nearly forgot his mission when he fleetingly spied the two figures in the dim light of his lantern. They darted almost noiselessly through the underbrush, and the astonished watchers seemed to think that they were entirely unclothed. Afterwards, he could not be sure about the boy, who, he, who may have had some kind of fringed belt and pair of dark trunks or trousers on. Wilbur was never subsequently seen alive and conscious without complete and tightly buttoned attire, the disarrangement or threatened disarrangement of which always seemed to fill him with anger and alarm. His contrast with his squalid mother and grandfather in this respect was thought very notable until the horror of 1928 suggested the most valid of reasons. The next January, gossips were mildly interested in the fact that Lavinia's black brat had commenced to talk, and at the age of only 11 months. The speech was somewhat remarkable both because of its difference from the ordinary accents of the region, and because it displayed a freedom from infantile lisping of which many children of three or four might well be proud. The boy was not talkative, yet when he spoke he seemed to reflect some elusive element wholly unpossessed by Dunwich and its denizens. The strangeness did not reside in what he said, or even in the simple idioms he used, 
but seemed vaguely linked with his intonation or with the internal organs that produced the spoken sounds. His facial aspect, too, was remarkable for its maturity, for though he shared his mother's and grandfather's chinlessness, his firm and precociously shaped nose united with the expression of his large, dark, almost Latin eyes to give him an air of quasi-adulthood and well-nigh preternatural intelligence. He was, however, exceedingly ugly despite his appearance <laughs> of brilliancy. <laughs> there was... <laughs> There being something almost goatish or animalistic about his thick lips, large poured yellowish skin, coarse crinkly hair, and oddly elongated ears. He was soon disliked even more decidedly than his mother and grandsire, and all conjectures about him were spiced with references to the bygone magic of old Watley, and how the hills once shook when he shrieked the dreadful name of Yogg-Sothoth in the midst of a circle of stones with a great book open in his arms before him dogs aboard the boy, and he was always obliged to take various defensive me measures against their barking menace. Alright, getting a good picture of the grossness of the Watley clan, because yes. holy shit. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, they hit every tree in the ugly forest, I think. <laughs> it's kind of the takeaway from that. Uh... <laughs> But yeah, I I also the the very first time that I read this too, um, like I didn't catch it right away. But that little line about uh, Silas thinking he saw he he sees Lavinia and Wilbur running around, and maybe they're naked, but maybe Wilbur's wearing some like like a like a fuzzy belt or something and some pants. Yeah, the fringe belt. Yeah. Yeah, but for for yeah again the first time I was like, well, that's a weird what a weird sort of uh, detail to note, but. Listeners, if that all, if, if you had a similar uh, kind of takeaway reading that sen sentence, it, it'll 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 come back. This is the Chekhov's fringed belt. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Oh boy! All, all right. right, here we go. Here, here we go. <clears throat> Three. Meanwhile, Old Waitley continued to buy cattle without measurably increasing the size of his herd. He also cut timber and began to repair the unused parts of his house, a spacious peak-roofed affair whose rear end was buried entirely in the rocky hillside, and whose three least-ruined ground-floor rooms had always been sufficient for him and his daughter. There must have been prodigious reserves of strength in the old man to enable him to accomplish so much hard labor. And though he still babbled dementedly at times, his carpentry seemed to show the effects of sound calculation. It had already begun as soon as Wilbur was born, when one of the many tool sheds had been put suddenly in order, clapboarded and fitted with a stout fresh new lock. Now, in restoring the abandoned upper story of the house, he was no less than thorough craftsman. His mania showed itself only in the tight boarding up of all the windows in the reclaimed section, though many declared that it was crazy to bother with the reclamation at all. Less inexplicable was his fitting of another downstairs room for his new grandson, a room which several callers saw, though no one was ever admitted to the closely boarded upper story. This chamber he had lined with tall, firm shelving, along which he began to gradually arrange, in apparently careful order, all the rotting ancient books and parts of books which during his own day had been held had been heaped promiscuously in odd corners of various rooms. 
I made some use of them, he would say as he tried to mend a torn blackler page with paste prepared on the rusty kitchen stove. But the boy's fitting to make better use of them. You ought to have them as well sought as he can. They're going to be all of his learning. When Wilbur was a year and seven months old, in September of 1914, his size and accomplishments were almost alarming. He had grown as large as a child of four and was a fluent and incredibly intelligent talker. He ran freely about the fields and hills and accompanied his mother on all her wanderings. At home, he would pore diligently over the queer pictures and charts in his grandfather's books, while old Wadley would instruct and uh, catechize him through long, hushed afternoons. By this time, the restoration of the house was finished, and those who watched it wondered why one of the upper windows had been made into a solid plank door. It was a window in the rear of the east gable end, close up against the hill, and no one could imagine why a cleated wooden runway was built up to it from the ground. About the period of this work's completion, people noticed that the old tool house, tightly locked and windowlessly clapboarded since Wilbur's birth, had been abandoned again. The door swung listlessly open, and when Earl Sawyer once stepped within after a cattle sell selling call on Old Watley, he was quite discomposed by the singular odor he encountered. Such a stench, he averred, as he had never before smelt in all his life except near the Indian circles on the hills, and which could not have come from anything sane or of this earth. But then the homes and sheds of Dunwich folk have never been remarkable for olfactory immaculateness. <laughs> Woo, immaculateness. Immaculateness? Yeah. Immaculateness? Immaculateness. <laughs> I, wonder I love if all it's... the little subtle burns in this. It's great. Like... No, yeah, I love that too. Yeah. Man, I wonder if it happens to smell anything like this Mountain Dew and cheap whiskey that we're drinking here. <laughs> <laughs> the following months were void of visible events, save that everyone swore to a slow but steady increase in the mysterious hill noises. On May Eve of 1915, there were tremors in which even the Aylesbury people felt, whilst the following Halloween produced an underground rumbling cl clearly synchronized with flame with bursts of flame, them which Waitley's doings. From the summit of Sentinel Hill, Wilbur was growing up uncannily, so that he looked like a boy of ten as he entered his fourth year. He read avidly by himself now, but talked much less than formally. A settled taciturnity was absorbing him, and for the first time people began to speak significantly of the drawing look of evil in his goatish face. He would sometimes mutter an unfamiliar jargon and chant in bizarre rhythms which chilled the listener with a sense of unexplainable terror. The aversion displayed towards him by dogs had now become a matter of wide remark, and he was even obliged to carry a pistol in order to traverse the countryside in safety. His occasional use of this weapon did not enhance his popularity among the owners of canine guardians. The few callers at the house would often find Lavinia alone on the ground floor, while odd cries and footsteps resounded in the boarded-up second story. She would never tell what her father and the boy were doing up there, though once she turned pale and displayed an abnormal degree of fear when a jocose fish peddler tried the locked door leading to the stairway. The peddler told the store loungers at Dunwich Village, The loungers reflect, thinking of the door and the runway and of the cattle that so swiftly disappeared. Then they shuddered as they recalled tales of old Watley's youth and the strange things that are called out of the earth when a bullock is sacrificed at the proper time to heat certain heathen gods. It had for some time been noticed that dogs had begun to hate and fear the whole Watley place as violently as they hated and feared young Wilbur personally. In 1917, the war came, and Squire Sawyer 
Watley, as chairman of the local draft board, had hard work finding a quota of young Dunwich men fit even to be sent to a development camp. The government, alarmed at such signs of wholesale regional decadence, sent several officers and medical experts to investigate, conducting a survey which New England newspaper readers may still recall. It was the publicity attending this investigation which sent reporters on the track of the Watleys, and caused the Boston Globe and Arkham Advertiser to print flamboyant Sunday stories of young Wilbur's precociousness, old Watley's black magic, the shelves of strange books, the sealed second story of the ancient farmhouse, and the weirdness of the whole region and its hill noises. Wilbur was four and a half then, and looked like a lad of fifteen. His lips and cheeks were fuzzy with a coarse, dark down, and his voice had begun to break. Earl Sawyer went out to the Watley place with both sets of reporters and cameramen, and called their attention to the queer stench which now seemed to trickle down from the sealed upper spaces. It was, he said, exactly like a smell he had found in the tool shed abandoned when the house was finally repaired, and like the faint odors which he sometimes thought he caught near the stone circles on the mountains. Dunwich folk read the stories when they appeared, and grinned over the obvious mistakes. They wondered, too, why the writers made so much of the fact that old Watley always paid for his cattle in gold pieces of extremely ancient date. The Watleys had received their visitors with ill-concealed distaste, though they did not dare court further publicity by a violent resistance or refusal to talk. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Which, this is going to sound weird, but, yeah. you know, when I was a little kid, I was, I was precocious, and I was talking to people, yeah. and I was, you know, I'd go around and run around like crazy, go off on adventures, and just go talk to people, and then when I hit a certain age, I got really kind of reserved and inward looking and did nothing but read and didn't want to talk to people. So, I don't know, like... And you're pretty damn tall. I'm, I'm, also pretty t- I'm also pretty tall, so it's not that... It's not that I have sympathy for Wilbur here, but yeah, some of that kind of kind of hit me in the feels. <laughs> Aww. It was like, yeah, look at that, look at that weird Josh guys loping all over the place and reading them strange books and muttering under his breath. <laughs> all I'm saying is, Wilbert Watley did nothing wrong yet. He he hasn't done yes. anything wrong yet, at least that we know of. But. <laughs> Four. For a decade, the annals of the Watleys sink indistinguishably into the general life of a morbid community, used to their queer ways, and hardened to their May Eve and All Hallows orgies. Twice a year they would light fires on the top of Sentinel Hill, which at times the mountain rumblings would recur with greater and greater violence, while at all seasons there were strange and portentous doings at the lonely farmhouse. In the course of time, callers professed to hear sounds in the sealed upper story, even when all the family were downstairs and they wondered how swiftly or how lingeringly the cow or bullock was usually sacrificed. There was talk of a complaint to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, but nothing ever came of it, since Dunwich folk are never anxious to call the outside world's attention to themselves. About 1923, when Wilbur was a boy of ten, whose mind, voice, stature, and bearded face all gave the impressions of maturity, a second great siege of carpentry went on at the old house. It was all inside the sealed upper part, and from bits of discarded lumber people calculated that the youth and his grandfather had knocked out all the partitions and even removed the attic floor, leaving only one vast void, open void, between the ground story and the peaked roof. 
They had torn down the, cent the great central chimney, too, and fitted a rusty range with a flim flimsy outside tin stovepipe. In the spring after the event, Old Waitley noticed the growing numbers of whippoorwills that would come out of Cold Spring Glen and chirp under his window at night. He seemed to regard the circumstances as one of great significance, and told the landers at Osborne that he thought his time had come. They whistle just in tune with my breathing now, he said, and I guess they're qu getting ready to catch my soul. They know it's a going out, and don't calculate to miss it. You'll know, boys, after I'm gone, whether they get me or not. If they do, they'll keep a singing and laughing till break of day. If they don't, they'll kind of quiet down, like. And I expect them and them souls they hunt fur and some pretty tough tussles sometimes. On Lammas night, 1924, Dr. Houghton of Aylesbury was hastily summoned by Wilbur Watley, who had lashed his one remaining horse through the darkness and telephoned from Osborne's in the village. He found old Watley in a very grave state, with a cardiac action and stentorious breathing that told of an end not far off. The shapeless albino daughter and oddly bearded grandson stood by the bedside, whilst from the vacant abyss overhead there came a disquieting suggestion of rhythmical surging or lapping, as of the waves on some level beach. The doctor, though, was chiefly disturbed by the chattering nightbirds outside, a seemingly limitless legion of whippoorwills that cried their endless messages and repetitions timed diabolically to the wheezing gasps of the dying man. It was uncanny and unnatural. Too much, thought Dr. Houghton, like the whole of the region he had entered so reluctantly in response to the urgent call. Toward one o'clock, Old Wadley gained consciousness and interrupted his wheezing to choke out a few more words to his grandson. More space, Willie. More space soon. You grows, and that grows faster. It'll be ready to serve you soon, boy. Open up the gates to Yogsasoth with a long chant that you'll find on page 751 of the complete edition, and then put a match to the prison. Fire from Earth can't burn it nohow. He was obviously quite mad. After a pause, during which the flock of whippoorwills outside adjusted their cries to the altering tempo while some indications of the strange hill noises came from far, afar off, he added an another sentence or two. Feed it regular, Willie. And mind the quantity. But don't let it grow too fast for the place. For if it busts quarters or gets out afore you opens to Yogsasoth, it's all over no use. Only them from beyond can make it multiply and work. Only them. The old ones just wants to come back. But speech gave place to gasps again, and Lavinia screamed at the way the whippoorwills followed in the change. It was the same for more than an hour when the final throaty rattle came. Dr. Houghton drew shrunken lids over the glazing gray eyes as the tumult of birds faded imperceptibly to silence. Lavinia sobbed, but Wilbur only chuckled whilst the hill noises rumbled faintly. They didn't get him, he muttered in his heavy bass voice. Wilbur was by this time a scholar of really tremendous erudition in his one-sided way, and he was quietly known by correspondence to many librarians in distant places where rare and forbidden books of old days are kept. He was more and more hated and dreaded around Dunwich because of certain youthful disappearances, which suspicion large laid vaguely at his door. 
but was always able to silence inquiry through fear and, and through use of the fund of old-time gold, which still, as in his grandfather's time, went forth regularly and increasingly for cattle buying. He was now tremendously mature of aspect, and his height having reached the normal adult limit seemed, to in, seemed inclined to wax beyond that figure. In 1925, when a scholarly correspondent from Miskatonic University called upon him one day and departed pale and puzzled, he was fully six feet and three, six and three quarters feet tall. Through all the years, Wilbur had treated his half-deformed albino mother with a growing contempt, finally forbidding her to go to the hills with him on May Eve and Hallow's Mass. And in 1926, the poor creature complained to Mamie Bishop of being afraid of him. There's more about him than I know as I can tell you, Mamie, she said. And nowadays, there's more than what I know myself. I vow afore God I don't know what he wants, nor what he a trying to do. That Halloween, the hill noises sounded louder than ever, and fire burned on Sentinel Hill as usual, but people paid more attention to the rhythmical screaming of the vast flocks of unnaturally belated whippoorwills, which seemed to assemble near the unlighted Whiteley farmhouse. After midnight, their shrill notes burst into a kind of pandemoniac cacination, which filled all the countryside, and not until dawn did they finally quiet down. Then they vanished, hurrying southward, where they were fully a month overdue. What this meant, no one could quite be certain till later. None of the country folks seemed to have died, but poor Lavinia Waitley, the twisted albino, was never seen again. In the summer of 1927, Wilbur repaired two sheds in the farmyard and began moving his books and effects out to them. Soon afterwards, Earl Sawyer told the loungers at Osborne's that more carpentry was going on in the Watley farmhouse. Wilbur was closing all the doors and windows on the ground floor and seemed to be taking out partitions as he and his grandfather had done upstairs four years before. He was living in one of the sheds, and Sawyer thought he seemed unusually worried and tremulous. People generally suspected him of knowing something about his mother's disappearance, and very few ever approached his neighborhood now. His height had increased to more than seven feet and showed no signs of ceasing its development. Yeah, it's, oh, th this is when it, like, if it already wasn't, like, unsettling enough, um, yeah, it's things are things are really starting to get really starting to get screwed up here. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Oh man. Two wizards will be right back after these messages. The arms of an angel, but not Wilbur Wadley. Hi, I'm Sarah McLaughlin. Every year, dozens of cows are bought by the Watleys, <laughs> and and they have strange lacerations on them. But for just a nickel a day, we can buy more cows to send to the Watleys. <laughs> for just strange ancient gold coins a day. <laughs> and now, back to Two Wizards. Oh boy, alright, so some weird happenings going around Dunwich. Let's, um... Yep. I need a drink, Josh, sorry. I need, I need a sec here. Yeah. God, this shit's rough. It's like, it oh, tastes God. the way that deer smell. <laughs> Does that make sense? That makes so much sense. It's, yeah, that's that's what it is. You you just know certain flavors oh, by the boy. way they smell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, cause, 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 cause you had, you had Jameson? Yeah. 
Because, yeah, mine is... I guess mine is, like, yeah, deer smell with, like... I don't know, like a weird, like, kind of... Because you know how, like, SoCo has, like, a kind of, like, weird cherry-ish uh-huh. sort of? Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's like a, a deer walked through, like, a like a cherry cough syrup. <laughs> this like deer processing. got into some scissor. Yeah, it's... it's oh, God. <laughs> oh, Maybe that's what... Maybe that's what they're doing to whatever is happening in the Watley farmhouse. There's a that's just it. Yeah, it's like deer deer on scissor, <laughs> stumbling around through the through the Miskatonic River system. <laughs> oh, yeah, we shit. we keep hearing this these weird rumblings and noises. What is it? And it's it, yeah, it's like got like a like trucker hat on sideways and a big chain. It's crashing into trees. <laughs> Deer on scissor. Did you hear oh about boy. Bambi's dad? He got a DUI. You mean he was driving? No, but he was being a deer under the influence, and man, that was scary as shit. He tried to fuck a bunch of cattle, tried to, like, shoot a hunter, but he didn't have thumbs. He just got really mad and said, fuck it. Walked into the general store and peed all everything. That was terrible, man. Like, Yeah, when, they, when the cops finally showed up, he was making Molotovs. <laughs> Thank God he couldn't light that lighter, man, or yeah. be a different story. Oh boy! Oh man! Yes, we are also. Well, I I think our silliness is increasing not only because we're coping with, um, yeah, this horrific combination of Mountain Dew and cheap whiskey, but also to try to comprehend the strange goings on of of the Dunwich horror and, and whatever's whatever's happening. And hey, we're like just about uh, we're just about halfway there. About right? halfway there. We're on five. We're on five. Five. Oh, oh, whippoorwills chitter through the air. Take my <laughs> polyp hand and we'll summon Yogg-Sothoth, I swear. Oh. Okay. <laughs> New idea. New idea. We need to, um, we'll, we can have this be like a, like a sister Twitter uh, account. Because I follow like haiku of the day type stuff. Okay. We're going to make a new Twitter account that's Lovecraft Haiku. Ooh, okay. Whippoorwills chitter with Old Watley's dying breath. The Shoggoth cries. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're we're. We'll do, yeah, okay, all right. Anyway, sorry, sorry. Focusing here on the task at hand. Five. The following winter brought an event no less strange than Wilbur's first trip outside the Dunwich region. Correspondence with the Widner Library at Harvard, the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, the British Museum, the University of Buenos Aires, and the, univer- and the Library of Miskatonic University of Arkham had failed to get him the loan of a book he desperately wanted. So at length he set out in person, shabby, dirty, bearded, and uncouth of dialect, to consult the copy at Miskatonic which was the nearest to him geographically. Almost eight feet tall and carrying a cheap new valise from Osborne's general store, 
this dark and goatish gargoyle appeared one day in Arkham in quest of the dreaded volume kept under lock and key at the college library. The hideous Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hasred, and Olaus Wormius's Latin edition, as printed in Spain in the 17th century. He had never seen a city before, and had no thought save to find his way to the university grounds, where indeed he passed heedlessly by the great white-fanged watchdog that barked with unnatural fury and enmity, and tugged frantically at its stout chain. Wilbur had with him the priceless but imperfect copy of Dr. D's English version, which his grandfather had bequeathed him, and upon receiving access to the Latin copy, he at once began to collate the two texts with the aim of discovering a certain passage, which would have come on the 751st page of his own defective volume. This much he could not civilly refrain from telling the librarian, the same erudite Henry Armitage, A.M. Miskatonic, Ph.D. Princeton, Lit. D. Johns Hopkins, who had once called, who had once called at the farm, and who now politely plied with questions. He was looking, he had to admit, for a kind of formula or incantation containing the frightful name Yog Sothoth, and the pu and it puzzled him to find discrepancies, duplications, and ambiguities, which made the matter of determination far from easy. As he had copied the formula he finally chose, Dr. Armitage invo invo looked involuntarily over his shoulder at the open pages, the left hand one of which the Latin verse contains such monstrous threats to the peace and sanity of the world. Nor is it to be thought, ran the text as Armitage mentally translated it, that man is either the oldest or the last of Earth's masters or that the common bulk of life and substance walks alone. The old ones were, the old ones are, and the old ones shall be. Drink. Not in the sp- Oh, drink, Sorry. drink. Sorry, call it drink. Oh yeah, right there. Mm. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, oh. Dark magic. Dark magic. Not in the spaces we know, but between them. They walk serene and primal, undimensioned and to us unseen. yogg knows the gate. Yogg-Sothoth is the gate. Yogg-Sothoth is the key and guardian of the gate. Past, present, future, all are one in Yogg-Sothoth. He knows where the old ones broke through of old, and where they shall break through again. He knows where they have trod Earth's fields, and where they still tread them, and why no one can behold them as they tread. By their smell can men sometimes know them near, but of their semblance can no man know, saving only in the features of those they have begotten on mankind. And of those, there are many sorts, differing in likeness from man's truest eidolon to that shape without sight or substance which is them. They walk unseen and foul in lonely places where the words have been spoken and the rites howled through at their seasons. The wind gibbers with their voices, and the earth mutters with their consciousness. They bend the forest and crush the city, yet may not forest or city behold the hand that smites. Kadath in the cold waste hath known them, and what man knows Kadath? The ice desert of the south and the sunken isles of ocean held sto hold stones whereon their seal is engraved. But who hath seen the, frozen, the deep frozen city, where the seals tower long garland with seaweed and barnacles? Great Cthulhu is their cousin, yet can he spy them only dimly. Iya, Shubnigarath, as a foulness shall you know them. Their hand is at your throats, yet ye see them not, and their habitation is even one with your guarded threshold. Yogg-Sothoth is the key to the gate whereby the spheres meet. Man rules now where they ruled once. They shall soon rule where man rules now. 
After summer is winter, and after winter, summer. They wait patient and potent, for here shall they reign again. Oh, and I think we have to drink. Drink, just drink. I think we have, yeah, we gotta, gotta. I think that was my single favorite passage of any Lovecraft ever. It's so good. It's so good. Well, and I, you know, to like take a quick break, I remember when we were doing our stage uh, play of some of these Lovecraft short stories, and mm-hmm. we had these little monologues that kind of broke up the different ones. Um, yeah, this was one of my favorites that yeah. uh, that uh, we, we did, because it is. It's just, oh, it's so good. It's so good. Um, which also, I just want, I also want to give props to Dr. Armitage for for him to be able to mentally translate <laughs> the Necronomicon like that. Like, okay, well, here, let me... Okay, I'm, I, I just pulled. I just pulled one of my kind of Greek tragedy books. Yeah, and like, granted, I'm. I haven't been studying this. I don't have my PhD from uh, Princeton or my Lit D from Johns Hopkins. But uh, okay, here's here's something from the from the Helen. I just randomly turned to. What do you say? Um, uh, uh, it is not my mother. Uh, on. On on Konian de Brocon, the ame, uh, Omoi, uh, Tugatras de Hermiones Estenlogos, um, uh, oh, uh, alas, is, is there a word, um, uh, uh, of your daughter Hermione? Uh, <laughs> um, uh, she is, she's un, unmarried and unchild, uh, oh, husband, uh, Catastene, uh, so 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 that's that's the process of translating mm-hmm. and even and even my classics professors who have been doing this for decades and decades that's kind of the pace that they go at so yeah for armitage to like glance over his shoulder and to get this down in his head this guy's a badass mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay sorry it's fun. I just no it's I, cool i i'm in, in a minute here, we're gonna kick into like the A team of senior citizen nerds, and I'm really excited for it. But like, yeah, yes, like, oh, yeah, totally. Literally, totally. this book is, or this story is Lovecraft going, "No, guys, it's cool to read." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and and even just one other final note, and I know we stopped kind of mid. Um, it's all uh, good. We had to stop for part, it anyway. part here. Yeah, but but that but that there's also some time taken to establish the transmission of the necronomicon that there's the that there's the latin copy that uh oh, where, where 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 was it yeah there was the there was the a latin copy Wormius copy yeah 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 so the so the hideous necronomicon so that was that was the archetype as it's called that's like the original source that we maybe don't have of right now and then there's a Latin version that was printed in Spain, and like that stuff, like that's what that's part of what doing sort of classics work is. Is it's like tracing. Okay, how did we get this text? What are the different versions of it? What are the different editions of it? Oh, okay. So again, like this this has my uh, classics jimmies all rustled because <laughs> it's all there. It's, all it's there. like talking about the trend. Which now I'm I'm even gonna like Google. Is there anything written on the transmission of the Necronomicon? Do we have, do we have an idea about? There's the history we... of the Necronomicon. Like it's it's a super right. it's almost a blurb, but yeah, it, it talks about how Hazard wrote it. And I want to say 992 AD, uh, and then like yeah, um, 
because Olaus Vermius picked one up in 1700s and then John D in the fi- 1400s. He's that, but that's cool too. Is like John D was a real wizard. We've talked about it before. Like yes, yeah, yeah. That is true. But that is true. I'm reading the Dunwich Horror off of HPLovecraft.com, and yeah, sure enough, there is a blurb: uh, the history of the Necronomicon by HP Lovecraft. And uh, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. We may have to come back to this later. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so. So that was a part uh, that that Dr. Armitage was able to read and mentally translate. Gigantic um, passages of text that he just read and mentally translated. Because go nerds! Yep, got, got it. <laughs> Check, please. Thank you. Check, please. All right. Dr. Armitage associated what he was reading with what he had heard of Dunwich in its brooding presences and Wilbur Waitley and his dim, hideous aura that stretched from a dubious birth to a cloud of probable matricide, felt a wave of fright as tangible as a draft of the tomb's cold clamminess. The bent, goatish giant before him seemed like the spawn of another planet or dimension, like something only partly of mankind, and linked to black gulfs of essence and entity that stretched like titan phantasms beyond all spheres of force and matters of space and time. Presently, Wilbur raised his head and began to speak in that strange, resonant fashion, which hinted at strange sound-producing organs unlike the run of mankind's. Mr. Armitage, he said, I calculate I gotta take that book home. These things in it I've got to try under certain conditions that I can't get here, and it'd be a mortal sin to let a red tape rule hold me up. Let me take it along, sir, and I swear they won't nobody know the difference. I don't need to tell you that I'll take good care of it. It wasn't me put this D copy in the shape it is. He stopped when he saw a firm denial on the librarian's face, and his own goatish features grew crafty. Armitage, half ready to tell him he might make a copy of what parts he needed, thought suddenly of the possible consequences and checked himself. There was too much responsibility in giving such a being the key to to such blasphemous outer spheres. Watley saw how things stood and tried to answer lightly. Well, all right, if you feel that way about it. Maybe Harvard won't be so fussy as you be. And without saying more, he rose and strode out of the building, stooping at each doorway. Armitage heard the savage yelping of the great watchdog and studied Watley's gorilla-like lope as he crossed the bit of campus visible from the window. He thought of the wild tales he had heard and recalled the old Sunday stories in the advertiser. These things... In the lore he had picked up from Dunwich rustics and villagers during his one visit there. Unseen things not of Earth, or at least not of tridimensional Earth, rushed fetid and horrible through New England's glens and brooded obscenely on the mountaintops. Of this he had long felt certain. Now he seemed to sense the close presence of some terrible part of the intruding horror, and to glimpse a hellish advance in the black dominion of the ancient and once passive nightmare. He locked away the Necronomicon with a shudder of disgust, but the room still reeked with an unholy and unidentifiable stench. As a foulness shall ye know them, he quoted. Yes, the odor was the same as that which had sickened him at the Watley farmhouse less than three years before. He thought of Wilbur, goatish and ominous once again, and laughed mockingly at the village rumors of his parentage. Inbreeding? Armitage muttered half aloud to himself. Great God, what simpletons! Show them Arthur Matchin's great god Pan, and they'll think it a common Dunwich scandal. But what thing, what cursed shapeless influence on or off this three-dimensional world was Wilbur Watley's father, born on Candlemas, nine months after May Eve of 1912, 
When the talk about the queer earth noises reached clear to Arkham? What walked on the mountains that May night? What rude mass horror fastens itself on the world in half-human flesh and blood? During the ensuing weeks, Dr. Armitage, Dr. Armitage set about to collect all possible data on Wilbur Watley and the formless presences about Dunwich. He got in communication with Dr. Houghton of Aylesbury, who had attended Old Watley in his last illness, and found much to ponder over in the grandfather's last words as quoted by the physician. A visit to Dunwich Village failed to bring out much that was new, but a close survey of the Necronomicon and those parts which Wilbur had sought so avidly seemed to supply new and terrible clues to the nature, methods, and desires of the strange evil so vaguely threatening this planet. Talks with several students of archaic lore in Boston, and letters with many others elsewhere, gave him growing amazement, which passed down through varied degrees of alarm and a state of really acute spiritual fear. As the summer drew on, he felt dimly that something ought to be done about the lurking terrors of the upper Miskatonic Valley, and about the monstrous thing known to the human world as Wilbur Watley. Dun, dun, dun. Which, because um, here at uh, here on campus, we have a, we have a special collections library of uh, rare books and manuscripts, mm-hmm. and yeah, like they keep that shit under lock and key. Oh like, yeah, like you like you got to sign in, you got to show them your like student ID. You have to put your backpack away in a locker so you don't like steal something and go off so you're not just going to let some Johnny come lately come in and waltz off with an old book and that could even be just like I don't know like Jane Austen poems like much less than the Necronomicon <laughs> <laughs> like, like so so I, I get excited when Lovecraft veers into the academic world because I'm like oh I kind of know about that stuff <laughs> But and you kind of talked about already, but he's pretty spot on, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think he, yeah, yeah he uh, uh, gets gets a lot of and and granted, this was what like uh, almost a hundred years ago, maybe Pert near, yeah, yeah, like eighty eighty some years ago, something like that. Um, yeah, but yeah, like all it, well, it, which also I think goes a lot to kind of show you how, in a lot of ways, how few things have changed or how little things have changed. Like, yeah, you go to the mm-hmm. library, like, okay, granted, we don't have watchdogs. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, like, there's, like, all these screens that you have to get through in order to, like, get to the old or maybe more valuable. I don't necessarily want to put a value on it. But, yeah, like, older, more valuable stuff. Um, yeah. And, yeah, they're not just well, going to... Well, too, I, I'm reminded of your, um, uh, your, your, what's he called, Josh? Not your boss. Your... What the fuck's your advisor? Your advisor yeah. taking that uh, manuscript and just reading yeah. in the park in L.A. Yeah, right. Yeah, he he was um, he was going to, to to Berkeley and yeah had and 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 I went and looked this up on um, if you t- so so the University of Michigan um, right north of us. Granted, that's like our rival, but whatever. I'm over that. Um, they're known for their papyrus collections, and they yeah. and they have pictures. They have like high resolution pictures of these fragments uh it's it's a it's a it's a sophocles play uh it, it's called the inicus and there's like i think five or six little fragments i don't know which one but one mm-hmm. of those my yeah my professor back in like the 70s just i'm gonna take this outside and read it in the sunlight <laughs> oh man 
It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Oh boy. But uh, but yeah. So lots of details. I I think they uh, are, are are reproduced here in in this story. Um, yeah. Cool, right, cool. Here we go. Well, moving on right. to. The Dunwich Horror itself came between Lammas and the Equinox in 1928, and Dr. Armitage was among those who witnessed its monstrous prologue. He had heard, meanwhile, of Watley's grotesque tri trip to Cambridge and of his frantic efforts to borrow or copy from the Necronomicon at the Widner Library. Those efforts had been in vain, since Armitage had issued warnings of the keenest intensity to all librarians having charge of the dreaded volume. Wilbur had been shockingly nervous at Cambridge, anxious for the book, yet almost equally anxious to get home again, as if he feared the results of being away long. Early in August, the half-expected outcome developed, and in the small hours of the third, Dr. Armitage was awakened suddenly by the wild, fierce cries of the savage watchdog on the college campus. Deep and terrible, the snarling, half-mad growls and barks continued, always in mounting volume, but with hideously significant pauses. Then there rang out a scream from a wholly different throat, such a scream as roused half the sleepers of Arkham and haunted their dreams ever afterward. Such a scream as could come from no being born of Earth or wholly of Earth. Armitage, hastening into some clothing and rushing across the street and lawn to the college buildings, saw that others w were ahead of him, and heard the echoes of the burglar alarm still shrilling from the library. An open window showed black and groping in the moonlight. What had come had indeed completed its entrance, for the barking and screaming now fast fading into low mixed growling and moaning proceeded unmistakably fl from within. Some instinct warned Armitage that what was taking place was not a thing for unfortified eyes to see. So he brushed back the crowd with authority as he unlocked the vestibule door. Among the other professors, among the others, he saw Professor Warren Rice and Dr. Francis Morgan, men whom he had told some of his conjectures and misgivings. These two he motioned to accompany him inside. The inward sounds, except for the watchful droning whine of the watchdog, had by this time quieted. But Armitage now perceived, with a sudden start, that a loud chorus of whippoorwills among the shrubbery had commenced a damnably rhythmical piping, as if in unison with the last breaths of a dying man. The building was full of a frightful stench which Dr. Armitage knew too well, and the three men rushed alongside the hall to the small genealogical reading room whence the low whining came. For a second nobody dared to turn on the light. Then Armitage summoned up his courage and snapped the switch. One of the three, he was not certain which, shrieked aloud at what sprawled before them among disordered tables and overturned chairs. Professor Rice declares that he wholly lost consciousness for an instant, though he did not stumble or fall. The thing that lay half-bent on its side in a fetid pool of greenish-yellow ichor and terry stickiness was almost nine feet tall, and the dog had torn off all the clothing and some of the skin. It was not quite dead, but twitched silently and spasmodically while its chest heaved in monstrous unison with the mad piping of the expectant whippoorwills outside. Bits of shoe leather and fragments of apparel were scattered about the room, and just inside the window an empty canvas sack lay where it had been evidently thrown. Near the central desk a revolver had fallen, 
a dented but undischarged cartridge later explaining why it had not been fired. The thing itself, however, crowded out all other images at the time. It would be trite and not wholly accurate to say that no human pen could describe it, but one may properly say that it could not be vividly visualized by anyone whose ideas of aspect and contour are too closely bound up with the common life forms of this planet and of the three known dimensions. It was partly human, beyond a doubt, with very man-like hands and head, and the goatish, chinless face had the stamp of the Watleys upon it. But the torso and lower parts of the body were teratologically fabulous, so that only generous clothing could ever have enabled it to, lock, to walk on Earth unchallenged or uneradicated. Above the waist, it was semi-anthropomorphic, though its chest, where the dog's rending paws still rested watchfully, had a leathery, reticulated hide of a crocodile or alligator. The back was piebald with yellow and black and dimly suggested the squamous covering of certain snakes. Below the waist, it was the worst, for here all human resemblance left off and sheer fantasy began. The skin was thickly covered with coarse black fur, from the abdomen a score of long greenish-gray tentacles with sucking mouths protruded limply. Their arrangement was odd and seemed to follow the symmetries of some cosmic geometry unknown to Earth or the solar system. On each of the hips, deep-set in a kind of pinkish, ciliated orbit, was what seemed to be a rudimentary eye, whilst in lieu of a tail there depended a kind of trunk or feeler with, a, with purple annular markings and with many evidences of being undeveloped mouth or throat. The limbs, save for their black fur, roughly resembled the hind limbs of prehistoric Earth's giant saurians, and terminated in ridgy, veined pads that were neither hooves nor claws. When the thing breathed, its tail and tentacles rhythmically changed colors, as if from some circulatory cause normal to the non-human greenish tinge. Whilst in the tail, it was manifest as a single yellowish appearance, which, al which alternated with sickly grayish white in the spaces between the purple rings. Of genuine blood there was none, only a fetid greenish-yellow ichor which trickled along the painted floor beyond the radius of the stickiness and left a curious discoloration behind it. As the presence of the three men seemed to rouse the dying thing, it began to mumble without turning or raising its head. Dr. Armitage made no written record of its mouthings, but asserts confidently that nothing in English was uttered. At first the syllables defied all correlation with any speech of Earth, but toward the last there came some disjointed fragments evidently taken from the Necronomicon, that monstrous blasphemy in quest of which the thing had, per had perished. These fragments, as Armitage recalls them, ran something like, Ngai, Nga, Ga, Bug, Shagog, Yaha, Yogsafath, Yogsafath. They trailed off into nothingness as the whippoorwills shrieked in rhythmical crescendos of unholy anticipation. Then came a halt in the, gra in the gasping, and the dog raised its head in a long, lugubrious howl. A change came over the yellow, goatish face of the prostrate thing, and the great black eyes fell in appallingly. Outside the window, the shrilling of the whippoorwills had suddenly ceased, and above the murmurs of the gathering crowd, there came the sound of a panic-struck whirring and fluttering. Against the moon, vast clouds of feathery watchers rose and raced from sight, frantic at that which they had sought for prey. 
All at once, the dog started up abruptly, gave a frightening bark, and leaped nervously out the window by which it had entered. A cry rose from the crowd, and Dr. Armitage shouted to the men outside that no one must be admitted till the police or medical examiner came. He was thankful that the windows were just too high to permit of peering in, and drew the dark curtains carefully down over each one. By this time, two policemen had arrived, and Dr. Morgan, meeting them in the vestibule, was urging them for the... Oh, shit. Oh, Mountain Dew burp, sorry. That's <laughs> no, okay, buddy. Ooh, got, my, got my own hill noises <laughs> going here. Yeah. <laughs> um, by this time, uh, two policemen had arrived, and Dr. Morgan, meeting them in the vestibule, was urging them for their own sakes to postpone entrance to the stench-filled reading room till the examiner came and the prostrate, prostrate thing could be covered up. Meanwhile, frightful changes were taking place on the floor. One need not describe the, ki the kind and rate of shrinkage and disintegration that occurred before the eyes of Dr. Armitage and Professor Rice. But it is permissible to say that aside from the external appearance of face and hands, the really human element of Wilbur Watley had been very small. When the medical examiner came, there was only a sticky whitish mass on the painted boards, and the monstrous odor had nearly disappeared. Apparently, Watley had had no skull or bony skeleton, at least in any true or stable sense. He had taken somewhat after his unknown father. Ooh, boy. Yeah. That, so... Again, just imagine this, like, nine-foot, gross-smelling, half, like, dinosaur... Hoof clawed thing. Oh my god. Eye, uh, eyes on its hips. Yeah. Fucking tentacle belt of doom with sucking mouths. Yeah. And that dear sweet doggo who took it down. <laughs> yeah. Good for you, bud. Good for you. Who's a good boy? Who Who's a good boy that somewhat stopped the Dunwich horror? Who's a good boy? <laughs> Which, oh, yeah. But also, like like you're saying, too, getting this trio of, like, old, gray or white-haired academic dudes. Um, <laughs> like, 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 proto-Ghostbuster kind of thing going on. Yeah, just a little bit. Proto-Ghostbuster vibes. Which I'm, 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 I'm positive that this is, um, like, already a thing. It may not be, like, a well-known thing, but I'm sure it's already a thing. But, yeah, I want to see, like... Uh, Miskatonic U, the graphic novel series. Or, that'd be uh, cool. That'd be so cool. Which, yeah, like it's and, and so it could be, yeah, like a like a monster of the week kind of thing. Like, uh, you could you could tie in you could tie in all all of the different stories from the Cthulhu mythos, or go off on different things as well. But that's man, you want to talk about a a ripe field for creative endeavor Miskatonic University which you and I both sir you and I both we we have degrees from yes we do uh, Miskatonic University bes uh, bestowed to us by like 15 year olds but still that we have degrees it's hanging up we got we got it yeah <laughs> I don't have any of my actual degrees like on display or hanging up but you better you better damn believe that I have my Miskatonic University Bachelor of Aww. Arts. 
Aww. hanging up in my home office. <laughs> oh man! All righty. Well, Mark, All right. we're, we're 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 getting towards the end here, so we gotta gotta yeah. gotta finish it off here. Here's here is. Seven. Yet all this was only the prologue of the actual Dunwich Horror. Formalities were gone through by bewildered officials, abnormal details were duly kept from press and public, and men were sent to Dunwich and Aylesbury to look up property and notify any who might be heirs of the late Wilbur Watley. They found the countryside in great agitation, both because of the growing rumblings beneath the domed hills and because of the unwanted stench and the surging, lapping sounds which came increasingly from the, em from the great empty shell formed by Watley's boarded-up farmhouse. Earl Sawyer, who tended the horses and cattle during Wilbur's absence, had developed a woefully acute case of nerves. The officials devised excuses not to enter the noisome boarded place and were glad to confine their survey of the deceased's living quarters, the newly mended sheds, to a single visit. They filed a ponderous report at the courthouse in Aylesbury, and litigations concerning airship are said to still be in progress amongst the innumerable Watleys, decayed and undecayed, of the upper Miskatonic Valley. An almost interminable manuscript in strange characters written in a huge ledger and adjudged a sort of diary because of the spacing and the variations in ink and penmanship presented a baffling puzzle to those who found it on the old bureau which served as its owner's desk. After a week of debate, it was sent to Miskatonic University, together with the deceased's collection of strange books, for study and possible translation, and even the best linguists soon saw that it was not likely to be unriddled with ease. No trace of the ancient gold with which Wilbur and Old Watley always paid their debts has yet been discovered. <laughs> just in case you were curious. Just in case. Just in case. But what about the gold? <laughs> It was in the dark of September 9th that the horror broke loose. The hill noises had been very pronounced during the, the evening, and dogs barked frantically all night. Early risers on the 10th noticed pecul a peculiar stench in the air. About 7 o'clock, Luther Brown, the hired boy at George Corey's, between Cold Spring Glen and the village, rushed frenziedly back from his morning trip to Ten Acre Meadow with, his, with the cows. He was almost convulsed with fright as he stumbled into the kitchen, and in the yard outside, the f no less frightened herd were pawing and, pawing and lowing pitifully. Having followed the boy back in panic, they shared with him. Between gasps, Luther tried to stammer out his tale to Miss Corey. Oh boy, here we go. Here we go. <clears throat> Up there on the road beyond the glen, Miss Corey. They shouldn't been there. It smells like thunder, and all the bushes and little trees is pushed back far from the road, like that a house been moved along it, and that it ain't the worst nother. They prints in the mud, Miss Corey. Great round prints as big as a barrel heads, all sunk down deep like an elephant had been along, and they a sight more than four feet could make. I looked at one or two afore I run, and I see every one was covered with lines spreading out from one place as if it was a big palm leaf fans twice to three times as big as any they is had been pound, had been a pounded down the road and the smell was awful like that old wizard Waitley's old house here he faltered and seemed to shiver afresh with the fright that had sent him flying home mrs cory unable to extract more information began telephoning the neighbors thus starting on its rounds the overture of panic that heralded the major terrors 
When she got Sally Sawyer, housekeeper at Seth Bishop's, the nearest place to the Watleys, it became her turn to listen instead of transmit. For Sally's boy Chauncey, who slept poorly, had been up on the hill toward Watley's and had dashed back in terror after one look at the place and at the pasturage where Mr. Bishop's cows had been left out all night. Yes, Miss Corey, came Sally's tremulous voice over the party line. Chauncey, he just come back a-postin' and couldn't have talk for being scared. He says old Watley's house is all blowed up with the timber scattered round like they'd been dynamite inside. Only the bottom floor ain't through, but it's all covered with a kind of tar-like stuff that smells awful and drips down off in the edges onto the ground where the side timbers is blown away. And they's off a kind of marks in the yard. Two great round marks, bigger round than a hogshead, and all sticky with stuff like is on the blowed up house. Chauncey says that they leads off into the meadows where a great swarth uh, wider than a barn is matted down and all the stun walls tumbled every which way wherever it goes. And he says, says he, Miss Corey, as how we sought to look for Seth's cows, frightened as he was, and found him in the upper pasture nigh the devil ho devil's hop yard in an awful shape. Half of them's clean gone, and nigh on half of them's left is sucked most dry blood, with sores on them like they've been on Watley's cattle ever since Lavinia's black brat was born. Seth, he's gone now, out now to look at them, no, I vow he wouldn't give. What the hell? <laughs> no, I vow he wouldn't care to get very nigh Wizard Waitley's. Watley's. I don't even know anymore. <laughs> this is easier to read the Necronomicon than this, like, transliterated Judd Crandall. As Josh mentally translated the weird yeah. hillbilly speak. <laughs> Everyone's Judd. Okay, also. Trying to do a woman's voice like Judd Crandall, too, is not, is not easy. <laughs> Chauncey didn't look careful to see where the big mat down swath led after it let the pasture, but he says it think it pinted toward the Glen Road to the village. I tell you, Miss Corey, there's something abroad that hadn't order been abroad, and I for one think that black Wilbur Watley has come to the bad end he deserved is at the bottom of the breeding of it. He wasn't all human himself, I always say to everybody. And I think what he I think he and old Whiteley must have raised something in that there nailed up house as ain't never so human as he was. They always been unseen things around Dunwich, living things, and ain't human and ain't good for human folks. The ground was a talking last night, and towards morning Chauncey he heard the whippoorwills so loud in Cold Spring Glen he couldn't sleep none. Then he thought he heard another faint-like sound over toward Wizard Watley's, a kind of ripping or tearing of wood, and s like some big box or crate was being opened fur off. Uh, what with this and that, he didn't get to sleep at all till sunup. Uh, ain't no sooner he was up this morning, but he got to go over to Watley's and see what's the matter. He see enough, I tell you, Miss Corey. That don't mean no good, and I think as all the men folk ought to get up a party and do something. I know something awful's about, and I feel my time is nigh, though only God knows just what it is. Did your Luther take account of what them big tracks led to? No? Well, Miss Carter, if they was on the Glen Road, this side of the Glen, and they ain't got to your house yet, I calculate they must go into the Glen itself. They would do that. I always say Colger and Spling ain't no healthy nor decent place. Whippoorwills and fireflies there never did act like they was creatures of God. And they's them as says you can hear strange things a-rushing and a-talking in the air down there if you stand in the right place 
Between the Rocks, Falls, and Bear's Den. Son of a bitch. Son of a bitch, drink. <laughs> drink. And then drink again for poor Josh. Whew. I don't think we're moonshine drunk or like Mountain Dew and whiskey drunk enough to actually like yeah to give that yeah fully yeah. embody yeah the ooh boy. Also, listeners, lest ye cast aspersions, this is all like written in weird Lovecraft yes redneck New Englander accent speak. It's all phonetic and it's all real weird. Yeah, we're struggling less on account of the uh, Mountain Dew and whiskey and more on the <laughs> fact that this is weird translated. Or, or, or transliterated, uh, kind of hillbilly speak. I don't know. It's <laughs> authentic New England frontier gibberish. Authentic I reckon New to say England frontier gibberish. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. All right. Here Ooh. we go. By that noon, fully three quarters of the men and boys of Dunwich were trooping over the roads and meadows between the new-made Watley ruins and Cold Springs Glen. Examining in horror the vast monstrous prince, the maimed bishop's ca- the maimed bishop's cattle, the strange noisome wreck of the farmhouse, and the bruised matted vegetation of the fields and roadside, whatever had burst loose upon the world had assuredly gone down into the great sinister ravine, for all the trees and the banks were bent and broken, and a great avenue had been gouged in the pre- precipice hanging underbrush. It was as though a house launched by an avalanche had slid down through the tangled growths of almost the vertical slope. From below, no sound came, but only a distant, undefinable fetter, and it is not to be wondered at the men prefaced to stay on the edge and argue rather than descend and beard the unknown cyclopean horror in its lair. Three dogs were in the party had barked furiously at first, but seemed cowed and reluctant near the glen. Someone telephoned the news to Aylesbury Transcript, but the editor, accustomed to the wild tales from Dunwich, did no more than concoct a humorous paragraph about it, an item soon afterwards reprinted by the Associated Press. That night, everyone went home, and every house and barn was barricaded as stoutly as possible. Needless to say, no cattle were allowed to remain in open pasturage. About two in the morning, a frightful stench and the savage barking of the dogs awakened the household at Elmer Fry's on the eastern edge of Cold Spring Glen, and all agreed they could hear a soft sort of muffled, muffled swishing or lapping sound from somewhere outside. Mrs. Fry p- proposed telephoning the neighbors, and Elmer was about to agree when the noise of splintering wood burst in upon all uh, burst in upon their deliberations. It came apparently from the barn, and was quickly followed by a hideous screaming and stamping amongst the cattle. The dog slavered and crouched close to the feet of the fear-numbed family. Fry lit a lantern through force of habit, but knew it would be death to go into the black farmyard. The children and womenfolk whimpered, kept from screaming by the obscene vestigial instinct of defense, which told them that their lives depended on silence. At last, the noise of the cattle subsided into a pitiful moaning, and a great snapping, crashing, and crackling ensued. The fries, huddled together in their sitting room, did not dare move until the echoes died far away down in Cold Spring Glen. Then amidst the dismissal moans from the stable and the demonic piping of late whippoorwills in the glen, Selina Fry tottered to her telephone and spread the news, and spread what news she could of the second phase of the horror. The next day, all the countryside was in a panic and cowed, uncommunicative groups came and went where the fiendish thing had occurred. Two tightened swaths of destruction stretched from the glen to the Fry farmyard. Monstrous prints covered the bare patches of ground, and one side of the old red barn had completely caved in. 
Of the cattle, only a quarter could be found and identified. Some of these were in curious fragments, and all that survived had to be shot. Earl Sawyer suggested that help be asked from Aylesbury or Arkham, but others maintained it would be of no use. Old Zebulon Watley, of a branch that hovered about halfway between soundness and decadence, made darkly wild suggestions about rites that ought to be practiced on the hilltops. He came of a line where tradition ran strong, and his memories of chanting in the great stone circles were not altogether connected with Wilbur and his grandfather. Darkness, fe darkness fell upon a stricken countryside too passive to organize for real defense. In a few cases, closely related families would band together and watch in the gloom under one roof, but in general there was only a repetition of the barricading of the night before, and a futile, ineffective gesture of loading muskets and setting pitchforks handily about. Nothing, however, occurred except some hill noises, and when the day came there were many who had hoped that the new horror had gone as swiftly as it had come. There were even bold souls who proposed an offensive expedition down in the glen, though they did not venture to set an actual example to the still reluctant majority. Pussies. <laughs> when night came again, the barricading was repeated, though there was a less huddling together of, uh, of families. In the morning, both the Fry and Seth Bishop households reported excitement among the dogs and vague sounds and stenches from afar, while early explorers noted with horror a fresh set, a fresh set of the monstrous tracks in the road skirting Sentinel Hill. As before, the sides of the road showed a bruising indicative of the blasphemi blasphemously stupendous bulk of horror. Oh, God, that's such a good drink. Drink, drink. from blasphemously stupendous bulk of horror. Drink. Ooh, fucking good. Sorry. No, it's Every great. now and then, he'll, get, he'll, he'll hit a line. I'm just like, oh, God, so good. Yeah. <laughs> well, Howard. Yeah, right, right. Be gentle, Howard. I'm not ready. <laughs> I'm ready, Howard. Um... <laughs> As before, the monstrous tracks in the roads, whilst the confrontation, <laughs> the confirmation of the tracks seemed to argue a passage in two directions, as if the moving mountain had come from Cold Spring Glen and returned along the same path. At the base of the hill, th a 30-foot swath of crushed shrubbery saplings led steeply upwards, and the seekers gasped when they saw that even the most perpendicular places did not deflect the inexorable trail. Whatever the horror was, it could scale sheer stony cliff of almost complete verticality, and the investigators climbed round the hill summit by safer routes when they saw the trail ended, or rather reversed there. It was here the Waitleys used to burn, build their hellish fires and chant their hellish rituals by the table-like stone on May Eve and Hallow's Mass. Now that very stone formed the center of a vast space thrashed around by the mountainous horror whilst upon the slightly concave surface was a thick and fetid deposit of the same tarry stickiness observed on the floor of the ruined Watley farmhouse when the horror escaped. Men looked from one another and muttered. They looked down the hill. Apparently, the horror had descended by a route much the same of that of its, of its ascent. To speculate was futile. Reason, logic, and normal ideas of motivation stood confounded. Only old Zebulon, who was not with the group, could have done justice to the situation or suggested a, a plausible explanation. Thursday night began much like the others, but it ended less happily. The whippoorwills in the glen had screamed with such unusual persistence that many could not sleep, and about 3 a.m. all the party telephones rang tremendously. Those who took down their receivers heard a fright-mad voice sh shriek out, Help! Oh my God! And then some thought a crashing sound followed the breaking off of the exclamation. 
there was nothing more. No one dared do anything, and no one knew till morning whence the call came. Then those who had heard it called everyone on the line, and found that only the Fries did not reply. The truth appeared about an hour later, when a hastily assembled group of armed men trudged out to the Fry place at the head of the glen. It was horrible, yet hardly a surprise. There were more swaths and monstrous prints, but there was no longer any house. It had caved in like an eggshell, and amongst the ruins nothing living or dead could be discovered. Only a stench and a tarry stickiness. The Elmer Fries had been erased from Dunwich. Oh, damn, so good. Oh, it's so good. It's so... Which, because... This is this is this is where Lovecraft like really shines. It's like, what are you gonna yeah. do? And and I love that he even calls out like, yeah, a couple morons loaded some muskets and had pitchforks like within arm's reach. Like, <laughs> it's like it's it, it, it and, and that's exactly what like cosmic horror is. You know, like that's like yeah. that's the thing. It's like. You, you, you can't comprehend this. You can't comprehend it. There's nothing you can do about it. It's going to cave in your house if you're unfortunate enough to be in the way of its great swaths and monstrous footprints. And you're, you're just done. You're done. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. So good. Well, and I like, too, you know, we read or, or uh, Dr. Armitage mentally translated, like, you don't see the hand at your throat. Like, yeah. you don't see this thing coming to kill you. It's just going to come do it. And I love that. I love that so much. Like, the idea that this thing is invisible, and sure, it's only happening at night or whatever, but god damn, that's so cool. I love that. It is. It's just, oh, man. It's, it's tremendous. It's, oh, boy. Two wizards will be right back after these messages. Hi, I'm Billy D. Williams. From Gluey McWoolnath Cthulhu Rillier Wakaganal Fatagin with Colt 45. And now, back to Two Wizards. All right, Mark. Well, we're, we're nearing the end here. We're, we're coming close. We're lumbering to the conclusion on our big monstrous feet and leaving sticky goo everywhere that we go. Uh, but we're almost there, buddy. We're almost there. I drank a whole bottle of Mountain Dew, Josh, and now I'm all sugared up and horny. Ha ha ha! Oh God! All right. Well, I think I think it's your yeah yeah because yeah. I just read the the last part there. So yeah, the field is yours. So. All right. But you can't see the field; just the giant holes in it. Which you can't see. The, yeah. Right. <laughs> all right. Eight. In the meantime, a quieter yet even more spiritually poignant phase of the horror had been blackly unwinding itself behind the closed door of a shelf-lidden room in Arkham. The curious manuscript record or diary of Wilbur Watley, delivered it to Miskatonic University for translation, had caused much worry and bafflement among the experts in language both ancient and modern. Its very alphabet notwithstanding, a general resemblance of heavily shaded Arabic used in Mesopotamia being absolutely unknown to any available authority. The final conclusion of the linguist was that the text represented the, an artificial alphabet, giving the effect of a cipher, though none of the usual met methods of cryptographic solutions seemed to furnish in any clue. 
even when applied on the basis of every tongue the writer might conceivably have used. The ancient book taken from Watley's quarters, while absorbingly interesting, in several cases promising to open up new and terrible lines of research among philosophers and men of science, were no assistance whatever in this matter. One of them, a heavy tome with an iron clasp, was, another, was in another unknown alphabet. This one of a very different cast, resembling Sanskrit more than anything else. The old ledger was given wholly into the charge of Dr. Armitage, be both because his peculiar interest in the Watley matter, and because of his wide linguistic learning and skills of the mystic formulae of antiquity and the Middle Ages. Armitage had an idea that the alphabet might be something esoterically used by certain forbidden cults, which have come down from old times and which have inherited many forms and traditions from the wizards of the Saracenic world. That question, however, he did not deem vital, since it would be unnecessary to know the origin of the symbols if, as he suspected, they were used as a cipher in a modern language. It was his belief that, considering the great amount of text involved, the writer would scarcely have wished the trouble of using another speech than his own, save perhaps in certain special formulae and incantations, Accordingly, he attacked the manuscript with the preliminary assumption that the bulk of it was in English. Dr. Armitage knew, from the repeated failures of his colleagues, that the riddle was a deep and complex one, and that no simple mode of solution would merit even a trial. All through late August, he fortified himself with the massed lore of cryptography, drawing upon the fullest resources of his own library, and waiting, further night, and waiting night after night amidst the arcana of Trithemius's Polygraphia, Giambattista Porta's De Forturis Liberarum Notis, De Venenier's Traite de Chiffres, Falconer's Cryptomensis Patefecta, Davis's and Thickness's 18th century treatises, and such fairly modern authorities as Blair, von Martin, and Kluber's Cryptographic which I get a kick out of pretending to speak those languages. <laughs> You're doing outrageous accents. But anyway, anyway. Hell yeah. He interspersed his study of the books with attacks on the manuscript itself, and in time became convinced that he had to deal with one of those subtlest and most ingenious of cryptograms in which many separate lines of corresponding letters are arranged like the multiplication table and the message built up with arbitrary keywords known only to the initiated. The older authorities seemed rather more uh, helpful than the newer ones, and Armitage concluded that the code of the manuscript was one of great antiquity, no doubt hounded down through a long line of mystical experimenters. Several times he, deemed, he seemed near daylight, only to be set back by some unforeseen obstacle. Then, as September approached, the clouds began to clear. Certain letters, as used in certain parts of the manuscript, emerged definitely and unmistakably, and it became obvious that the text was indeed in English. On the evening of September 2nd, the last major barrier gave way, and Dr. Armitage read for the first time a continuous passage of Wilbur Watley's Annals. It was in truth a diary, as all had thought, and was couched in a style clearly showing the mixed occult erudition and general illiteracy of a strange being who wrote it. Almost the first long passage that Armitage had deciphered, an entry dated November 26, 1916, proved highly, proved highly startling and disquieting. It was written, he remembered, by a child of three and a half who looked like a lad of twelve or thirteen. 
Today, learn the Aklo for the Sabaoth, it ran, which did not like, it being answerable from the hill and not from the air. That upstairs more ahead of me than I thought it would be, and it is not like to have much earth brain. Shot Elam Hutchins collie Jack when it tried to bit me, and Elam says he'd kill me if I dast. I guess he won't. Grandfather kept me saying the dough formula last night, and I think I saw the inner city at the two magnetic poles. I shall go to those poles when Earth is cleared off. If I can't break through with the Do-Hana formula when I commit it, they from the air told me at Sabat that it will be years before I can clear off the Earth, and I guess Grandfather will be dead then. So I shall have to learn the angles and the planes and all the formulas between Yir and Nagar. They from outside will help but cannot take body without human blood. That upstairs looks like it will have the right cast. I can see it a little when I make the Vorish sign, or blow the powder of Ibn Ghazi at it. And it is near like them at May Eve on the hill. The other face may wear off some. I wonder how I shall look when the earth is cleared, and there are no earth beings on it. He that came with the Aklo Sabaoth said that I may be transfigured there being something much of outside to work on. Morning found Dr. Armitage in a cold sweat of terror and a frenzy of wakeful concentration. He had not left the manuscript all night, but sat at his table under the electric light turning page after page with shaking hands as fast as he could decipher the cryptic text. He had nervously telephoned his wife that he would not be home, and when she brought him a breakfast from the house, he could scarcely dispose of a mouthful. All that day he read on, now and then halted maddeningly as a reapplication of the complex key became necessary. Lunch and dinner were brought him, but he ate only the smallest fraction of either. Toward the middle of the night, uh, ooh. oh boy, hill okay, noises. Hold on. Oh, here we go. Toward the middle of the next night, he drowsed off in his chair, but soon woke out of a tangle of nightmares almost as hideous as the truths and menaces to man's existence that he had uncovered. On the morning of September fourth, Professor Rice and Doctor Morgan insisted on seeing him for a while, and departed trembling and ashen gray. That evening, he went to bed, but slept only fitfully. Wednesday, the next day, he was back at the manuscript and began to take copious notes both from the current sections and from those he had already deciphered. In the small hours of that night, he slept a little in an easing chair in his office, but was at the manuscript again before dawn. Sometime before noon, his physician, Dr. Hartwell, called to see him and insisted that he cease work. He refused, intimating that it was of the most vital importance for him to complete the reading of the diary and promising an explanation in due course of time. That evening, just as twilight fell, he finished his terrible perusal and sank back exhausted. His wife, bringing him dinner, found, a half comato found him in a half-comatose state, but he was conscious enough to warn her off with a sharp cry. When he saw her eyes wander toward the notes he had taken, weakly rising, he gathered the scribbled papers and sealed them all in a great envelope, which he immediately placed inside of his coat pocket. He had sufficient strength to get home, but was so clearly in need of medical aid that Dr. Hartwell was summoned at once. As the doctor put him to bed, he could only mutter over and over again, But what in God's name can we do? Dr. Armitage slept, but was partly delirious the next day. He made no explanations to Hartwell, Hartwell but in his calmer moments spoke of an imperative need of a long conference with Rice and Morgan.
His wilder wanderings were startling, were very startling indeed, including frantic appeals that something in a boarded-up farmhouse be destroyed, and fantastic references to some plan for the extirpation of the entire human race and all animal and vegetable life from the earth by some terrible elder race of beings from another dimension. He would shout that the world was in danger, since the elder things wished to strip it and drag it away from the solar system and cosmos of no of matter in some other plane or phase of entity from which it had fallen, vigintillions of aeons ago. At other times he would call for the dreaded Necronomicon and the Daemonolatria of Remigius, in which he had seemed hopeful in finding some formulae, formula to check the peril he had conjured up. Stop them! Stop them, he would shout. Those Wadleys meant to let them in, and worst of all has left. Tell Rice and Morgan we must do something. It's a blind business, but I know how to make the powder. It hasn't been fed since the 2nd of August when Wilbur came here to his death, and at that rate... But Armitage had a sound physique despite his 73 years, and slept off his disorder that night without developing any real fever. He woke late Friday, clear of head, though sober with a gnawing fear and tremendous sense of responsibility. Saturday afternoon, he felt able to go over to the library and summon Rice and Morgan for a conference. And the rest of that day and evening, the three men tortured their brains in the wildest speculation and the most desperate debate. Strange and terrible books were drawn voluminously from the stack shelves and from secure places of storage. And diagrams and formulae were copied with feverish haste and in bewildering abundance. Of skepticism, there was none. All three had seen the body of Wilbur Watley as it lay on the floor in a room of that very building. And after that, not one of them could feel even slightly inclined to treat the diary as a madman's raving. Opinions were divided as to notifying the Massachusetts State Police, and the negative finally won. There were things involved which simply could not be believed by those who had not seen a sample, as indeed was made clear during certain subsequent investigations. Late at night, the conference disbanded without having developed a definite plan, but all day Sunday, Armitage was busy comparing formulae and mixing chemicals obtained from the college laboratory. The more he reflected on the hellish diary, the more he was inclined to doubt the efficacy of any material agent in stamping out the entity which Wilbert Watley had left behind him, the earth-threatening entity which, unknown to him, was to burst forth in a few hours and become the memorable Dunwich Horror. Monday was a repetition of Sunday with Dr. Armitage, for the task in hand required an infinity of research and experiment. Further consultations of the monstrous diary brought about various changes of plan, and he knew that even in the end a large amount of uncertainty must remain. By Tuesday, he had a definite line of action mapped out and believed that he would try a trip to Dunwich within the week. Then on Wednesday, the great shock came. Tucked obscurely away in the corner of the Arkham Advertiser was a facetious little item from the Associated Press, telling of what a record-breaking monster the bootleg whiskey of Dunwich had raised up. Armitage, half-stunned, could only telephone for Rice and Morgan. Far into the night they discussed, and the next day it was a whirlwind of preparation on the part of them all. Armitage knew he would be meddling with terrible powers, yet saw that there was no other way to annul the deeper and more malign meddling which others had done before him. All right, here well, we go. I, we're, well, we're rounding up the posse of nerds, Josh. It's time, baby. We're rounding up the posse of nerds, and we're 
drinking bootleg whiskey and seeing things. <laughs> My liver hurts. I don't like Mountain Dew and whiskey, Josh. I don't no, feel it's bad. Good. It's a bad. It's a bad combination. We're we're gonna have to have our respective significant others kind of like do. Yeah, like I feel like Armitage. Like I can't eat anything. I'm having like fitful. I'm probably gonna have a fitful night's sleep with nightmares and. <laughs> I don't know the last stuff. time I had this much damn sugar. I, I hate to sound like an old person, but god damn. I'm no, just like, but, no, but truly, I'm all sugar the yeah. fuck up, man. Like, yeah, I I can already. Yeah, it's it's bad. I'm. I think I think I hear a chorus of whippoorwills um, gathering outside my window here and there. Oh fuck. Oh fuck. It's shrieking. Coming. Yeah, they're shrieking in rhythm with my breathing here. Huh. <laughs> all right, here we go, buddy. Here we are. Nine. Friday morning, Armitage, Rice, and Morgan set out by motor for Dunwich, arriving at the village about one in the afternoon. The day was pleasant, but even the brightest sunlight, a kind of quiet dread and portent, seemed to hover about the strangely domed hills and the deep, shadowy ravines of the stricken region. Now and then on some mountaintop a gaunt circle of stones could be glimpsed against the sky. From the air of hushed fright at Osborne's store, they knew something hideous had happened and soon learned of the annihilation of the Elmer Fry house and family. Throughout that afternoon they rode around Dunwich, questioning the natives concerning all that had occurred, and seeing for themselves with rising pangs of horror the dread friar ruins with their lingering traces of the tarry stickiness, the blasphemous tracks in the fry yard, the wounded Seth Bishop cattle, and the enormous swaths of disturbed vegetation in various places. The trail up and down Sentinel Hill seemed to Armitage of, most, of almost cataclysmic significance, and he looked long at the sinister altar-like stone on the summit. At length the visitors, apprised of a party of state police which had come from uh, Aylesbury that morning in response to the first telephone reports of the Fry tragedy, decided to seek out the officers and compare notes as far as practicable. This, however, they found more easily planned than performed since no sign of the party could be found in any direction. There had been five of them in a car, but now the car stood empty near the ruins in the fry yard. The natives, all of whom had talked with the policeman, seemed at first as perplexed as Armitage and his companions. Then old Sam Hutchins thought of something and turned pale, nudging Fred Farr and pointing to the dank, deep hollow that yawned close by. God, he gasped. I told him not to go down there in that glen, and I never thought nobody'd do it with them tracks and all the smell and them whippoorwills a screeching down there on that dark o' noonday. A cold shudder ran through the natives and visitors alike, and every ear seemed strained in a kind of instinctive and conscious listening. Armitage, now that he had actually come upon the horror and its monstrous work, trembled with the responsibility felt he felt to be his. Night would fall soon, and it was then that the mountainous blasphemy lumbered upon its eldritch course. Negotium perambulums and tenebris. The old librarian rehearsed the formulae he had memorized, and clutched the paper containing the alternative one he had not memorized. He saw that his electric flashlight was in working order. Rice beside him took from a valise a metal sprayer of the same sort used in combating insects, while Morgan uncased a big game rifle on which he relied despite his colleague's warning that no material weapon would be of any help. Armitage, having read the hideous diary, knew painfully well what kind of manifestation to expect. 
but he did not add to the fright of Dunwich's people by giving them any hints or clues. He hoped that it might be conquered without any revelation to the world of the monstrous thing that had escaped. As the shadows ga gathered, the natives commenced to disperse homewards, anxious to bar themselves indoors, despite the present evidence that all human locks and bolts were useless before the force that could bend trees and crush houses when it chose. They shook their heads at the visitor's plan to stand guard the fry ruins near the glen, and as they left, had little expectancy of ever seeing the watchers again. There were rumblings under the hills that night, and the whippoorwills piped threateningly. Once in a while a wind, sweeping up out of cold spring glen, would bring a touch of ineffable fetter to the heavy night air. Such a fetter as all three of the watchers had smelled once before, when they stood above a dying thing that had passed for fifteen years and a half as a human being. But the looked-for terror did not appear. Whatever was down there in the glen was biding its time, and Armitage told his colleagues that it would be suicidal to try to attack it in the dark. Morning came wanly, and the night sounds ceased. It was a gray, bleak day, with now and then a drizzle of rain, and heavier and heavier clouds seemed to be piling themselves up beyond the hills to the northwest. The men from Arkham were undecided what to do, Seeking shelter from the increasing rainfall beneath one of the few undestroyed fry outbuildings, they debated the wisdom of waiting, of taking the aggressive and going down into the glen in quest of their nameless, monstrous quarry. The downpour waxed in heaviness, and distant peals of thunder sounded from far horizons. Sheet lightning shimmered, and then a forky bolt flashed near at hand, as if descending into the accursed glen itself. The sky grew very dark, and the watchers hoped that the storm would prove a short, sharp one, followed by clear weather. It was still gruesomely dark, when not much over an hour later, a confused babble of voices sounded down the road. Another moment brought to view a frightened group of more than a dozen men running, shouting, and even whimpering hysterically. Someone in the lead began sobbing out words, and the Arkham men started violently when those words developed coherent form. Oh my god, my god, the voice choked out. It's a going again, and this time by day, it's out. I don't know why I'm Colonel Sanders. It's out and a moving this very minute, and only the Lord knows when it'll be upon us. The speaker panted into silence, but another took up his message. God damn, here we go. All right. You got it, buddy. Good, my ones, take a drink. Yep. Take All right. Bam, bam. Nigh on an hour ago, Zeb Watley uh, here, he heard the phone a ringing, and it was Miss Corey, George's wife that lives down the junction. She said the higher boy Luther was out of driving the cows from, from the storm out to the big bolt. When he sees all the trees abandoned in the mouth of the glen opposite, opposite side to this, and smelt the same awful smell like he smelt when he found them big tracks last Monday morning. And she says he was barely... And he, Okay, fucking name. And she says, he says, there was a swishing, lapping sound. More like, no, more, more, fucking A. More, God, okay, here we go. Just fucking focus. You can you're, do this. You're, you're a big boy. You're a fucking Jedi Knight. You're a rock. Get it. You got it. More nor than what the bend in trees and bushes can make. <coughs> and all of a sudden, God, now I start choking on, what the fuck? <laughs> 
I'm all fucking horned up. I'm sorry. Too much Mountain Dew. No more Mountain Dew. Sweeping proclamation. No, yeah, no Mountain Dew on the podcast. Never again. Never again. Okay, let's. We're, we're okay, third time's a charm, and if not, I'm just gonna let you do this because fuck me. Okay. Sure. <laughs> uh, where am I? Sorry. And she says he says there was the swish and lapping sound, more northern the bend in the trees and bushes can make. And all of a sudden, the trees along the road began to get pushed to one side, and there was an awful stomping and splashing in the mud. But mind you, Luther said he didn't see nothing at all. Only the bending trees. Only the bending trees and underbrush. Then for a while, where Bishop's Brook goes under the rud, he heard an awful creaking and a straining on the bridge, and he says he could hear the sound of wood starting to crack and split. And all the whiles, he never seen a thing, only them trees and bushes abending. And when the swishing sound was very fur off, on the roads toward Wizard Watley's house in Sent- or Wizard Watley's in Sentinel Hill, Luther, he had the guts to step up where he'd heard at first and look at the ground. It was all mud and water, and the sky was dark, and the rain was whipping out, and the tracks about as fast as they could be seen. But the beginning at the Glenmouth, where the trees had moved, they still there was still some of them awful prints as big as barrels like he'd seen on Monday. At this point, the first excited speaker was interrupted. Okay, now you go, because I can't. Yeah, Jesus yeah, it's okay. But that ain't the trouble now. That was only the start. Zeb Hill was calling folks up and everybody was listening in when a call from Seth Bishop cut in. His housekeeper Sally was carrying on fit to kill. She just see the trees abandoned beside the road and said they was a kind of mushy sound like an elephant puffing and treading headed for the house. Then she up and spoke sudden to a fearful smell and says her boy Chauncey was a-screamin' as how it was just like what he smelt up to the wildly ruins Monday morning, and the dogs was all barkin' and whinin' awful. And then she let out a terrible yell and says she the shed down the road had just caved in like the storm had blown it over, only the wind wasn't strong enough to do that. Everybody was a-listenin', and we could hear lots of folks on the wire gaspin'. All to... All to aunt, what? All uh, I think all it's all I, like all at once. I think. Okay, okay. Oof. Right. All to aunt. That's so weird. All to aunt. O N C T. Sally. <laughs> Sally, she yelled again, and says the front yard picket fence had just crumbled up, though they want no sign of what done it. And everybody on the line could hear Chauncey and old Seth Bishop a yelling too, and Sally was shrieking about that something heavy. It struck the house, not lightning nor nothing, but sudden heavy again the front. It kept a launching itself again and again, although you couldn't see nothing about the front windows. And then, and then, lines of fright deepened on every face, and Armitage, shaken as he would, had barely poise enough to prompt the speaker. And then, Sally, she yelled out, Oh, help, the house is a-caving in! And on the wire, we could hear a terrible crashing and a whole flock of screaming, just like when Elma Fry's place was took, only worse. The man paused, and another of the crowd spoke. That's all. Not a sound or a squeak over the phone after that. Just still like. We that heard it got out and founds and wagons and rounded up as many able-bodied men as we could get at Corey's place and come up here to see what you thought was best to do. Jesus Christ. 
I just some of it is just so like dew is fucking it's, me up. I don't know why dew is fucking me up so bad. Um, no, it is it is rough. It is undeniably rough. Oh god, I don't even think I'm gonna like cut out our stutters in this because fucking yeah, because like, it's good. Yeah, that's fantastic just, story. But try and read it out loud, and it all goes to fucking pot. <laughs> Not but what I think the Lord's judgment for our iniquities that no more mortal kin mortal kin ever set aside. Armitage saw the time for positive action had come, and spoke decisively to the faltering group of frightened rustics. And he speaks in English, so this will be real easy. (laughs) We must follow it, boys. He made his voice as reassuring as possible. I believe there's there's the chance of putting it out of business. You men know that the Watleys were wizards. Well, this thing is a sort of wizardry, and must be put down by the same means. I've seen Wilbur Watley's diary and read the same strange books as he used to read. And I think I know the right kind of spell to recite to make the thing fade away. Of course, no one can be sure, but we can always take a chance. It's invisible. I knew it would be, but there's powder in this long-distance sprayer that might make it show up for a second. Later on, we'll try it. It's a frightful thing to have alive, but isn't as bad as what Wilbur would have let in if he'd lived longer. You'll never know what what the world escaped. Now we've only this one thing to fight, and it can't multiply. It can, though, do a lot of harm. So we mustn't hesitate to rid the community of it. We must follow it, and the way to begin is to the place that has just been wrecked. Let someone lead the way. I don't know your roads very well, but I have an idea there must be a shortcut across lots. How about it? The men shuffled about a moment, and then Earl Sawyer spoke softly, pointing with a grimy finger at the steadily lessening rain. I guess you can get to Seth Bishop's quickest by cutting across the lower meadow here, wading the brook at the low place, and climbing through Carrier's Mowing and the timber lot beyond. That comes out on the upper road, mighty nice Seth's. A little on the other side. Armitage with Rice and Morgan started to walk in the direction indicated, and most of the natives followed slowly. The sky was growing lighter, and there were signs that the storm had worn itself away. When Armitage inadvertently took a wrong direction, Joe Osborne warned him and walked ahead to show the right one. Courage and confidence were mounting, though the twilight of the almost perpendicular wooden hill which lay toward the end of their shortcut and among whose fantastic ancient trees they had to scramble as if up a ladder, put these qualities to a severe test. At length they emerged on a muddy road to find the sun coming out. They were a little beyond the Seth Bishop place, but bent trees and hideously unmistakable tracks showed what had passed by. Only a few moments were consumed in surveying the ruins just about the bend. It was the Fry incident all over again and nothing dead or living was found in either of the collapsed shells which had been the bishop house and barn. No one cared to remain there amidst the stench and tarry stickiness, but all turned instinctively to the line of horrible prints leading on towards the wrecked Watley farmhouse and the altar-crowned slopes of Sentinel Hill. As the men passed the site of Wilbur Watley's abode, they shuddered visibly and seemed again to mix hesitancy with their zeal. It was no joke tracking down something as big as a house that no one could see, but had all the vicious malevolence of a demon. Opposite the base of Sentinel Hill, the tracks left the road, and there was a fresh bending and matting visible with a broad swath marking the monster's former route and from the summit. 
Armitage produced a pocket telescope of considerable power and scanned the steep green side of hill and then handed the instrument to Morgan, whose sight was keener because they're all old men. And after a moment of gazing, Morgan cried out sharply, passing the glass to Earl Sawyer and indicated a certain spot on the slope with his finger. Sawyer, as clumsily as most non-users of optical devices are, fumbled a while, but eventually focused the lenses with Armitage's aid. When he did so, his cry was less restrained than Morgan's had been. God almighty, the grass and bushes is a-movin', and it's a-goin' up slow, like creepin' up to the top this minute. Heaven only knows what fur. Then the germ of panic seemed to spread among the seekers. It was one thing to chase the nameless entity, but quite another to find it. Spells might be alright, but suppose they weren't. Voices began questioning Armitage about what he knew of the thing, and no reply seemed quite to satisfy. Everyone seemed to feel himself in close proximity to the phases of nature and of being utterly forbidden and wholly outside the sane experience of mankind. Oh boy, okay, so... Oh, we got it, here this we are, is... we, we got the creature, it's up on Sentinel Hill. There was a it's lot of hard language in there for us to try and like pick through and decipher, but we're, we're doing it, they got the posse. I'm sure Foggy I Mountain think... Breakdown's been playing this whole time. <laughs> I think I am able to empathize with um, Armitage and, and Rice and Morgan and all the native uh, Dunwichians even more because I've been drinking this god-awful blend of Mountain Dew and SoCo and my my brain is fried. But I'm going to go up there with my, like, bug spray canister. <laughs> got your Ibn Ghazi powder. You're going to be okay. We're, we're, we're here. We're here. Last section. Section 10. Section 10. Go. Get after it, buddy. In the end, the three men from Arkham, old, white-bearded Dr. Armitage, stocky, iron-gray Professor Rice, and lean, youngish Dr. Morgan, ascended the mountain alone. After much patient instruction regarding its focusing and use, they left the telescope with the frightened group that remained in the road. And as they climbed, they were watched closely by those among whom the glass was passed around. It was hard going, and Armitage had to be helped more than once. High above the toiling group, the great swath trembled as its hellish maker repassed with snail-like deliberateness. Then it was obvious that the pursuers were gaining. Curtis Watley, of the Undecade branch, was holding the telescope when the Arkham party detoured radically from the swath. He told the crowd that the men were evidently trying to get to a subordinate peak which overlooked the swath at a point considerably ahead of where the shrubbery was now bending. This indeed proved to be true, and the party were seen to gain the minor elevation only a short time after the invisible blasphemy had passed it. Then Wesley Corey, who had taken the glass, cried out that Armitage was adjusting the sprayer which Rice held, and that something must be about to happen. The crowd stirred uneasily, recalling that this sprayer was expected to give the unseen horror a moment of visibility. Two or three men shut their eyes, but Curtis Watley snatched back the telescope and strained his vision to the utmost. He saw that Rice, from the party's point of vantage above and behind the entity, had an excellent chance of spreading the potent powder with marvelous effect. Those without the telescope only saw an instant's flash of gray cloud, 
a cloud about the size of a moderately large building near the top of the mountains. Curtis, who held the instrument, dropped it with a piercing shriek into, ankle deep mud, into the ankle-deep mud of the road. He reeled and would have crumbled to the ground had not two or three others seized and steadied him. All he could do was moan half inaudibly, Oh, oh, great God, that, that... There was a pandemonium of questioning, and only Henry, Henry Wheeler thought to rescue the fallen telescope and wipe it clean of mud. Curtis was past all coherence, and even isolated replies were almost too much for him. Bigger than a barn, all made of squirming ropes, whole thing sort of shaped like a hen's egg, bigger than anything with dozens of legs like hogs' heads that half shut up when they step. Nothing solid about it. All jelly and made of separate wriggling ropes pushed close together. Great bulging eyes all over. Ten or twenty mouths, trunks are sticking out the all sides, big as stovepipes and all tossing and opening and shutting and all gray with kinder blue or purple rings. Oh, God in heaven, that half face on top. This final memory, whatever it was, proved too much for Curtis and he collapsed completely before he could say more. Fred Farr and Will Hutchins carried him to the roadside and laid him on the damp grass. Henry Wheeler, trembling, turned to the rescued telescope on the mountain to see what he might. Through the lenses were discernible three tiny figures, apparently running towards the summit as fast as the steep incline allowed. Only these, nothing more. Then everyone noticed a strangely unseasonable noise in the deep valley behind, and even the underbrush of Sentinel Hill itself. It was the piping, it was the piping of unnumbered whippoorwills, and their shrill chorus seemed to lurk a note of tense and evil expectancy. Earl Sawyer now took the telescope and reported the three figures as standing on the topmost ridge, virtually, virtually level with the altar stone, but at a considerable distance from it. One figure, he said, seemed to be raising its hands above its head at rhythmic intervals, and as Sawyer mentioned the circumstance, the crowd seemed to hear a faint, half-musical sound from the distance, as if a loud chant were accompanying the gestures. The weird silhouette on that remote peak must have been a spectacle of infinite grotesqueness and impressiveness, but no observer was in a mood for aesthetic appreciation. "'I guess he's saying the spell,' whispered Wheeler as he snatched back the telescope. The whippoorwills were piping wildly, and in a singularly curious, irregular rhythm quite unlike that of the visible ritual. Suddenly the sunshine seemed to lessen without the intervention of any discernible cloud. It was a very peculiar phenomenon, which was plainly marked by all. A rumbling sound seemed brewing underneath the hills, mixed strangely with a concordant rumbling which clearly came from the, su from the sky. Lightning flashed aloft and the wondering crowd looked in vain for the portents of storm. The chanting of the men from Arkham now became unmistakable, and Wheeler saw through the glass that they were all raising their arms in the rhythmic incantation. From some farmhouse far away came the frantic barking of dogs. The change in the quality of the daylight increased, and the crowd gazed about the horizon in wonder. A purplish darkness, born of nothing more than a spectral deepening of the sky's blue, pressed down upon the rumbling hills. Then the, right, then the lightning flashed again, somewhat brighter than before, and the crowd fancied that it had showed a certain mistiness around the altar stone on the distant height. No one, however, had been using the telescope at that instant. 
The whippoorwills continued their irregular pulsation, and the men of Dunwich braced themselves tensely against some imponderable menace with which the atmosphere seemed surcharged. Without warning came those deep, cracked, raucous vocal sounds, which will never leave the memory of the stricken group who heard them. Not from any human throat were they born, for the organs of man can yield no such acoustic perversions. Rather, would one have said that they came from the pit itself, had not their source been so unmistakably the altar stone on the peak. It's almost erroneous to call them sounds at all, since so much of their ghastly infrabase timber spoke of a dim seats of consciousness and terror far subtler than the ear. Yet one must do so, since their form was undisputedly, though vaguely, that of the half that of half-articulate words. There were loud rumblings and thunder above they echoed, yet they did not come from no visible being. And because imagination might suggest a conjectural, conjectural source in the world of non-visible beings, the huddled crowd at the mountain's base huddled still closer and winced at half it, and winced as in if expectation of the blow. Ngahai, Ngahai, Thiflongar, Yogsothoth, rang the hideous croaking out of space. Yabafnik, Yahai. The speaking impulse seemed, seemed to falter here, as if the frightful psychic struggle were going on. Henry Wheeler strained his eye at the telescope, but only saw three grotesquely silhouetted human figures on the peak, all of their arms move, moving furiously in strange gestures, and their incantation drew nearer in, in its culmination. From what black wells of acherontic fear or feeling, from what unplumbed gulfs of extra-cosmic consciousness or obscure long-latent heredity were those half-articulated thunder croakings drawn. Presently they began to gather renewed force and coherence, and they grew stark, utter, ultimate frenzy. Eh, yeah, 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 yeah. Eh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ngah, ngah. Hey, you. Hey, you. Help. Help. Father. Father. Rog Sothoth. But that was all. The pallid group in the road still reeling at the indisputably English symbols that had poured thickly and thunderously down from the fran frantic vacancy beside that shocking altar stone, and were never such to hear such syllables again. Instead, they jumped violently at, at the terrific report which seemed to rend the hills, the deafening, cataclysmic peal whose source, be it inner earth or sky, no hearer was ever able to place. A single bolt of lightning shot from the purple zenith to the altar stone, and a great tidal wave of viewless force and indescribable stench swept down from the hill all to the countryside. Trees, grass, and underbrush were whipped into a fury, and the frightened crowd at the mountain's base weakened by the lethal fetter that seemed to asphyxiate them were almost hurled off, were almost hurled off their feet. Dogs howled from a distance. Green grass and foliage wilted to a conscious and sickly yellow-gray, and over the field and forest were scattered the bodies of, whip of dead whippoorwills. The stench left quickly, but the vegetation never came right again. To this day there is something queer and unholy about the growths on and around that fearsome hill, 
Curtis Watley was only just regaining consciousness when the Archimen came slowly down the mountain in the beams of a sunlight once more brilliant and untainted. They were grave and quiet, and seemed shaken by memories and reflections even more terrible than those which had induced the group of natives to a state of cowed quivering. In reply to a jumble of questions, they only shook their heads and reaffirmed one vital fact. The thing has gone forever, Armitage said. It has been split up into what it was originally made of and can never exist again. It was an impossibility in a normal world. Only the least fraction was really matter in any sense we know. It was like its father, and most of it has gone back to him in some vague realm or dimension outside our material universe. Some vague abyss out of which only the most accursed rites of human blasphemy could ever have called him for a moment on the hills. There's a brief silence, and in that pause the scattered senses of poor Curtis Watley began to knit back into a sort of continuity, so that he put his hands to his head with a moan. Memory seemed to pick itself up where it had left off, and the horror of the sight that had prostrated him burst in upon him again. Oh my god, that half-face! That half-face on top of it! That face with the red eyes and crinkly albino hair and no chin like the Watleys! It was an octopus, centipede, spider kind of thing, but there was a half-shaped man's face on top of it, and it looked like Wizard Watley's, only it was yards and yards across. He paused exhausted as the whole group of natives stared in a bewilderment not quite crystallized into fresh horror. Only old Zebulon Watley, who wanderingly remembered ancient things, but who had been silent heretofore, spoke aloud. Fifteen years gone, he rambled. I hear old Watley said as how some day we'd hear a child of Lavinia's a-calling its father's name on top of Sentinel Hill. But Joel Osborne interrupted him to question Archimen anew. What was it anyhow? And however did young wizard Watley call it out of the air it come from? Armitage chose his words very carefully. It was, well... It was mostly a kind of force that does not belong in our part of space. A kind of force that acts and grows and shapes itself by other laws than those of our sort of nature. We have no business in calling such things from outside, and only very wicked people and very wicked cults ever try to. There was some of it in Wilbur Watley himself, enough to make a devil and a precocious monster of him, and to make his passing out a pretty terrible sight. I'm going to burn his accursed diary, and if you men are wise, you'll dynamite that altar stone up there and pull down the rings of standing stones on the other hills. Things like that brought down the beings and those Watleys were so fond of, the beings they were going to let in tangibly to wipe out the human race and drag Earth off to some nameless place for some nameless purpose. But as to this thing we've just sent back, the Watleys raised it for a terrible part in the doings that were to come. It grew fast and big for the same reason that Wilbur grew fast and big. But it, would, but it beat him, because it had a greater share of the outsideness in it. You needn't ask how Wilbur called it out of the air. He didn't call it. It was his twin brother, but it looked more like the father than he did. Woohoo! 
Oh boy, we Dunwich did it. Dunwich Horror, we did it. I thought for a minute we weren't going to do it, but we did it. Holy we did, shit. No, it was it was looking like I I was seeing farmhouses being caved in and I was smelling an awful tarry oh. sticking us around, but we did we did it. That this was, was a precipitous the, fucking hillside. I tell you what, man. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It, it took three academics from from Miskatonic U and some weird powder that uh, got us through it. But okay, so let's yeah, let's maybe like wrap this up. Yeah. With like final. Oh man. Final like, thoughts. So, how do you feel? So that that ending, which like I I know that's kind of like a thing, like the very last couple sentences or last paragraph, like oh, but here's a twist ending. That Lavinia was pregnant with twins this mm-hmm. entire time. Oh my God, that floored me. Like, and, and and all those other pieces like fit into place. Like, oh, that's what was upstairs, and that's why yeah. they needed all the cattle. And like, oh, it's so good, so good. They were fucking feeding it the whole time. Like, just yeah. that, just that part is so. Oh God, like, <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Well, and, and also like the. Lovecraftian trope of the posse, because mm-hmm. because there's a posse here, there's a posse in the color out of space. Yep. Where, yeah, there's there's like a group of dudes like, all right, let's go figure this thing out, and then they're all just, holy shit. There's a posse <laughs> of sailors and call it Cthulhu that ruin it for everybody. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah right. Yeah. Just, uh, and maybe it's because we were talking about like the academy. Uh, of all that, it's like, God damn, I have a, I have a conference paper to write. I can totally like find some conference on, uh, yeah, either literature or something like that. And I want to write a conference paper or, or you could mark, you could write a paper on like the trope of the posse in HP Lovecraft. And it's like, let's gather up a bunch of dudes and try and figure this thing out and then have our minds blown. <laughs> well, and you know, it's funny too. This is a weirdly like two wizardy story. Cause how many of the things that we talk about, do we talk about where the, well, they go round up the posse and then I cue foggy mountain breakdown and yeah. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, I got to reiterate, I want to go on a fucking monster hunt, but fine, right? whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, it, well, and, and even, and even more on the nose, I suppose is uh wizard Watley. Like that's like, don't think that all wizards are as bad as Wizard Watley. We, Mark and I, we are we are the good wizards. We want to share our knowledge with you. We don't want to uh, go on like weird benders on home improvement and <laughs> nailing things up and and shuttering things. No, we want to we 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 want to share this with you, and we want to share our knowledge and what our takeaway is and uh, all that stuff. And we're not, to my knowledge, at least, we're not buying like weird like like strange amounts of livestock that suddenly go missing (laughs) so oh god my one my one note for this is like yes man i really wish we could like see wilbur's big day in the city (laughs) yeah I want to see, you know, eight foot fucking tall Wilbur Watley traipsing around like downtown Arkham. The ice cream. And then he gets like some rocky road or something. And it yeah. just like blows his fucking mind. He's like, well, maybe I don't need to open the gates to the Yogg Sothoth. I don't know. 
oh there what was this movie when like when we were in like grade uh you know, like grade school it was like duncan checks in dunstan and like checks in about the chimp yeah yeah and, and so yeah 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 like that sort of thing or like again like the other archetype or trope of like the like the um yeah like the city boy going to the city for the first time or 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 or, or even like that great song like when you're alone and life is making you lonely you can always go to miskatonic yeah downtown <laughs> When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, downtown, go to the library. Downtown, the Necronomicon. Downtown, yes, that dog's barking at you. <laughs> do, 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 do. And then he, like, jumps up 20 feet in the air and throws his fucking hat off into freeze frame. You see produced by Miller Boyette Productions. Yeah, perfect. (laughs) Okay, so, yes. So, definitely want to see, like, the Miskatonic U graphic novel series. Definitely want to see Wilbert Watley's... um, (laughs) Big Day Out. Big Day... Yeah, Big Day Out. (laughs) Um... (laughs) A series of Disney Channel movies where the key protagonist is replaced by Wilbur Watley. 15 years old, goatish and bearded, standing 8 feet tall. Wait a minute, you mean I'm half leprechaun? (laughs) Wilbur Watley in Halloween Town. We have to defeat Caliban! He just pulls out the neck and blows the whole fucking thing apart. Yeah, it's... yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Coming to Disney Channel this fall is Wilbur Tsunami. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, are, are any of these Disney Channel original movie jokes from the 90s landing with you? I fucking hope so. I sure hope so, because it's this is comedy gold over God, here. I think this might be us at our, like, two silliest Wizards moment, dude. Like, Oh, yeah. I was well, so excited is. for this, and I was like, ah, oh, it might be a little bit longer and this is going to crack, like, right now in about the three-hour-ish mark, and fuck. Yeah, we are, but, like, we are knocking on that door. But totally worth it. Absolutely worth it. Gr- gr- great story. So, and even and even though, like, most of it was going through, we still had our moments. We were, we were, we, we got our jokes in. We got our uh, Sarah McLaughlin and the SPCA <laughs> moment in um so so yes i will and i i know that uh well because i'm because i'm gonna do some traveling for thanksgiving i'm gonna meet up with my family again and uh yeah like if ever like if ever there's a story about like family and gathering and eating food and like the weird fallout that can happen from that um so 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 long as I have a Thanksgiving better than the Watleys, um, <laughs> it'll be a great it'll be a great Thanksgiving indeed. <laughs> here here, buddy. Here here. So, um, yeah, I I, I guess we'll we'll uh, try to try to wind this up here. So, listeners, tell us, let us know what was your experience. Have have you ever? read the Dunwich horror before is this a new one to you um do you 
do you feel like look uh uh mate like what what could have been the harm of giving wilbur the necronomicon or maybe you want to mo know more about that sweet doggo like if not for that dog that dog prevented <laughs> apocalypse yeah just because he was he was the best boy and chomped on Wilbur Watley's like weird four dimensional guts. Um, <laughs> but 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 anyway, let us know. Let us know. Are are your family get-togethers as contentious as the decadent Watleys? We want to know. We do. Um, and 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 you can share that with us uh, by a couple of different ways. You can send us an email to two wizards podcast at gmail.com you can find us on twitter at two wizards pod c1 uh me just specifically josh i'm on twitter at plaid barbarian and you can find mark on twitter at you can find me on twitter at marky stardust and also um real quick i didn't even mean to do it this way josh the guy who played wilbur watley in the original like 1970 when did this come out Sorry, I should know this off the top of my head. Nineteen, the original nineteen seventy Dunwich Horror, uh, mm -hmm. Dean Stockwell. He just passed away on November the seventh, and so oh you know goodness. what? I'm gonna go ahead and call it and say that this one is dedicated to you, there, Mr. Stockwell. He's in a lot yes, of other good absolutely. movies, but it's just kind of a weird like sinking up of things, and I didn't realize until I thought, wait a minute, because you know I'm always like looking forward to the future. I'm like, Josh, let's mm -hmm. do a Lovecraft movie series, and I was like, wait, Dean Stockwell just died, so. Got to shout out Dean Stockwell. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yes, and 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 we can we can we can dedicate this episode uh, to his honor, his legacy, and uh, yeah, I think like like that mailbag uh, letter that that was throwing shade at us for only having one entry in the summer cinema series. Well, hey, guess what, cupcake? Maybe we'll we'll follow that up with uh, with. Uh, in, in in Dean Stockwell's honor, watching the 1970s version of Dunwich Horror, because uh, because yes, I know that you're you're crazy busy with the holidays. <laughs> it's gonna um, be a bear cat, yeah. It it is gonna be a bear cat or a weird twin that has a half human face on top, and maybe we just want to watch a movie, so. <laughs> <laughs> I I got time to watch. It's it's weird. It's not really true to the whole like source material, but sure. boy, like in terms of Lovecraft movies, the 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 OG Dunwich is pretty all right. Yeah. D then, uh, listeners, write that down in your day planners and hold us to it. That or don't, because just... I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. But yeah. Oh yeah. But yeah, that's a fair but, point. But. That's a fair point. But for right now, let's go ahead and sign this off and. Uh, I'm Josh. I'm a wizard. Keep an ear out for the weird warbling of or shrieking of any sort of psychopomp birds. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Sorry. Not at all. Not at all, buddy. <laughs> but yes, but but I'm but I'm Josh and I'm a wizard. And I'm Mark and I'm a wizard. Thank you for listening everybody. Thanks for sticking through with us. Have a happy Thanksgiving. And I'm really, I'm just apologizing in advance for next week, and I'm a fucking Grumpasaurus. But I love you all, <laughs> every one of you. Always love, always love, and take care. Good night, guys. He rolled upon his back, and after that, I killed.